Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 88th episode of the Nauticast titled The Homefront, an analysis of A Clash of Kings brand two in which the Northmen come to Winterfell to offer their services to the Starks for nothing. Nothing at all in return because um, they're about manly honor, right? Right, right. Hell no, they're politicians and they've come to play the game. And we're very happy to have back on to talk the politics of ice and fire as always. Please welcome back to the Nauticast, Stephen Atwell. Hello, hello. Welcome back, man. It's a pleasure having you back. It's uh, going to be a lot of fun un- unpacking this chapter. You've been on for a bunch of chapters that have involved Riverlands politics, and now we're going to be up in the north with you. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, my northern feudal politics thesis finally <laughs> showing itself in all its glory. I do remember reading your essay on this one for the first time specifically because of the attention you paid to it. And this is a chapter and this is kind of a storyline that doesn't get a lot of attention and love, I feel, generally speaking. But you made a very strong case that it's it's uh, not only really thematically important in terms of the kind of politics and the kind of struggles we see, but also reveals a great deal about the character of the North and really sets up strongly plot-wise where the North goes by the end of The Clash of Kings and the effects that has on the Storm of Swords. So we knew we had to have you on this one for a... Uh, to tease it all out. Mm-hmm. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council on Patreon. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach. Grand Master, Tim Bob. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves. Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Arch Mr. June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Word of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, War of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, the blue ringed Otteling, Lord Jake assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Richard C. Lord of Bravos, Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Brian, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, and the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That's the five novels, three Duck novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor Race chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Hedrigal, captain of the airship Arrogance on our small council. What do you think is the significance of all the food descriptions to A Song of Ice and Fire as a whole, beyond just George R. R. Martin's obvious appreciation of the actual meat and potatoes logistics of medieval peoples feeding themselves? And indeed, the food porn of A Song of Ice and Fire is something that comes under uh, a fair amount of critique, or at least attention. It's something that comes up even when the series is being casually discussed. So what do you make of this aspect, Stephen? I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that, like, Martin likes food. Food makes for great (laughs) It's one of the few things that I think actually works really well on the page as in in some ways and better than other mediums. I mean, I think back to like, if you've ever read Brian Jake's Redwall series. That's exactly what I was thinking. Stephen Brust, uh, who's another great fantasy novelist, also just writes these amazing descriptions of food. But in in Martin's work, like it's always got some sort of deeper thematic moment, uh, meaning to it. Like... You don't have to look to, like, the fact that the, the phrase at the Red Wedding put on shitty food to, like, you know, that that's very, that's the most obvious. But, like, you know, think about Cersei and, like, her boar tasting like victory or in, in this chapter, right? We have this whole kind of wintry uh, harvest festival meal 
And it's all about the North and what food means to the North and the meaning of winter and the relationship of the Starks to their people and the concept of winter. And it's like everything is there. It's, it's a whole political culture wrapped up in a meal. I agree with that. And I think, you know, to, to back up your point that Martin loves food, he wrote the foreword to Feast of Ice and Fire book, which was published a couple of years ago. It's a great little foreword where George talks about how, well, he's not that much of a good cook, although he can make a fine, you know, plate of scrambled eggs for, for his wife. But primarily, he, he loves food and he loves to talk about food. And I believe that some of the books that he recommends on his website deal specifically with medieval food and feasting. And so he's very interested in it as a concept altogether. That being said, I think you're right, is that there's a thematic reason why food is in The Song of Ice and Fire and why it's described with such detail. I think of things like the Purple Wedding and all of the courses of food that are brought out for all the noble classes. In Winterfell, as we're going to find out in this chapter and in Bran 3 as well, you know, everyone kind of gets a plate. Every You know, Bran has that lovely line about sending sweets down to old Nan and Hodor because he loves them. A food is a way to bring people together, but it's also a way to separate classes in Westeros. It's a way to ensure that the noble classes are fed much better and have the ability to have 99 courses of a meal for Joffrey and, and Marjorie's wedding in the Storm of Swords, while the small folk in the Riverlands are starving to death because of all of the horrible shit that Tywin Lannister has done in the War of the Five Kings. So I think it's you could see it being used both to bring the people together in the, in the case of the Starks, but you can also see it in terms of dividing the people in, in the case of the Lannisters and the Tyrells. Stephen made a, a great comparison to the the Redwall books. Those were my favorite books as a kid before, you know, I picked up The, the Shining and Books of Blood and whatever else. <laughs> and those those take such great lavish attention to the food. And there's, there's a number of reasons for that. One is that, as, as George says, so much of fantasy is about awakening your senses about like you know says fantasy is indigo and azure and you know obsidian and lapis lazuli and but you know part of that is is the details and colors and smells and tastes of food is a, is a great way of, of grounding in that world and part of it is just a genuine love for the way i think you know even Im impoverished people or marginalized people or people who just don't have a huge amount of resources compared to other people around them can find great delight in craftsmanship and heritage and meaning in food. And that's something that persists all through human history and I think definitely applies to a story like this in which, you know, you have, as you, Jeff, as you say, a lot of people just gorging themselves at the top, but also people at every level trying to find meaning. And that's not even something you have to impose on food. Food, I think, just brings that with it. Like, George doesn't have to impose meaning when Davos gets to White Harbor and goes to that that uh, that that bar he loves and has the the terrible, terrible food that he nonetheless loves because he's nostalgic for it. Like that just, that comes out of food and the, and the meaning and identity that comes out of that naturally. I understand if people who aren't just super eating to reading descriptions in general, why that would start to wear on people. But I, I think it's it's always an important part of the text. And yeah, the Red Wedding is only the most obvious example. I love that the phrase are like, yeah, why would we waste good food on corpses? We're cheap. <laughs> yeah. We're not gonna, you know, they're gonna be dead in 45 minutes. We're not gonna give them our best. Right. And then you have the contrast to the Purple Wedding where they are sipping exactly. the, all the great food of the Tyrells. Yeah, 77 to, courses. 77, not 99, yeah. That's how the Tyrells roll. They overwhelm you with, with roses and, and flour and bread and smiles. And then you don't even notice that they poisoned you until it's far too late. Very different from how the phrase roll, but equally effective and expressed wonderfully through food. And it's also, but it's also the same thing too of like um, using that as a form of deception, deceiving the Lancers, thinking, like, oh, we had nothing to do with murdering Joffrey Lancer. Look at all this food that we provide for you guys. We are above suspicion. It was our party. Why would we ruin our own party? Mm hmm. Absolutely. 
So, thank you to Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, for his excellent question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we'll answer on the Nauticast podcast. We welcome you to become a sworn sword or higher patron at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can ask us questions. We will answer on the podcast. Absolutely. And for our patrons, our next patron-only episode is coming very, very soon. Our episode all about the Greyjoy Rebellion will be available for all $5 and above patrons starting on Thanksgiving week. What a way to celebrate Thanksgiving with another patron episode on our parts. You're welcome. So if you're looking for all of that worship that I love and all the Euron shit that Emmett loves for your trek back to be with your friends and family, come join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast ASOF and listen to us do all things about the Great Joy Rebellion and immediately get all of our other Patreon-only content, including 21 other episodes, show notes, early access, and much, much more. But enough about Patreon. Let's get on to Brandon Stark. When we last checked in with Bram, the future king of Westeros had just started his kingship training at the foot of Maester Lewin, and we had been introduced to his, quote, friends of Frey. Let's check back in with Bran to see how his royal training is going in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Bram 2. In the dark hours before sunrise, Bran is awake, thinking about the Harvest Feast. When he was a boy, he loved the Harvest Feast, loved to watch the Jousted Games, but that was before. Now, well, he has to play the part of Prince Bran, all the while knowing that the Walders Frey will be out there able to do the fun stuff. Bran had never asked to be a prince. It was knighthood he had always dreamed of. Bright armor and streaming banners, lance and sword, a warhorse between his legs. Why must he waste his days listening to old men speak of things he only half understood? In answer all this, Bran's subconscious had spoken. Because you're broken. He was heir to Rob after all, and he needed to serve in Rob's place in Winterfell when the lords arrived. The first to arrive was Lord Wyman. The North remembers you fray fucking bitches, Manderly. He had come to Winterfell by barge with a huge party of knights and civilians alongside of him. As to why Lord Wyman was here with such a fine party, well, he's not here simply to enjoy a meal. He's got reasons to be here, as Roderick Cassell states. Back in his bedroom, Bran looks up to the ceiling, knowing about what Robin Ed would say to him. Winter is coming, and you were almost a man grown. You have a duty. Holder comes in a bit later and gets Bran up to be washed, brushed, and made to look princely with a white wool doublet and silver brooch. These days, Bran could mostly dress himself, but he still had problems with getting breeches and boots on. With Hodor's help, he is able to get all his stuff on, though. Bran tells Hodor that he could have been a knight if the gods hadn't taken your wits. Yeesh, George, man, I'm really seeing you now that we've got this season six in mind. Hodor blinks back and at Bran and says, Hodor? Bran then climbs onto the basket on Hodor's back, and Hodor ducks under the doorframe because, of course, he's ducking under a doorframe. Remember, hold the door. Bran recalls that Hodor once went charging headlong into the kitchen when he smelled bread, knocking Bran's head against the doorframe as a result. Bran had had a helmet made after, for him after that, but after the Walders Frey laughed at him, Bran, well, he seldom wore it. Bran decides that he wants to go to have a look at the swordplay going on in the castle yard, and he directs Hodor to the sound of steel ringing from the courtyard. For now, it's not lordlings out there, it's only squires, and Bran wishes, more than anything, he could be one of those squires. He observes that two quintains have been set up with shields painted in Lannister colors, and those shields were already well scarred when Bran arrives. His arrival sadly provokes stares, and even though Bran had learned to ignore them, you kind of get the sense he still feels everyone's eyes on him. Bran observes the Walders mounting up, gets a good look at their armor and sigils, sees Big Walders' crest, quote, shaped like a castle. While knowing that the sigils were quartered with Little Walder having the Twin Towers of Frey alongside of Craig Call and Derry sigils, while Big Walder had Blackwood and Page sigils quartering the Twin Towers of House Frey. They must be hungry for honor, Bran thought as he watched them take up their lances. A Stark? Needs only a direwolf. Bran watches as they move their horses gracefully together, hitting the Quintains. Bran thinks Little Walder hit the targets harder, but Big Walder rode better. Bran wishes he had legs so he could ride against them both. 
But because these boys are phrased, they decide to have some, quote, fun with Bran and Hodor. Little Walter rides over and calls Hodor a, quote, ugly horse, while Big Walter says, no, no, Hodor isn't as smart as a horse. Hodor just says, Hodor, amiably, and man, am I feeling angry with those fucking kids. Little Water wonders if Hodor is talking with his horse, and Bran tells him to shut the fuck up. When Little Water keeps going on, asking what Bran would do if he doesn't shut up, Big Water warns that Bran will set his wolf on him. Let him, Little Water says. I always wanted a wolfskin cloak. Summer would tear your fat head off, Bran says in response. Little, Little Water starts doing some more posturing, and then, thankfully, Maester Lewin shows up to be the adult. He yells that the Frey boys are being little shits and demands to know if this is how they behave with the twins. If I want to, top is coarser. Little Water Frey gave Lewin a sullen glare as if to say, you were only a maester. Who are you to reproach a Frey at the crossing? But Lewin says that might be so, but that ain't how Lady Catelyn Stark wants you to act. Act. He asks what caused all this, and Big Water gets all apologetic, lying about how they were just joshing around and that they're sorry if they offended Bram. Little Water looks all peevish, but he claims he was only trying to be amusing too. Lewin, though, can see right through them. A good lord comforts and protects the weak and helpless. I want to have you making Hodor the butt of cruel jest. Do you hear me? He's a good-hearted lad, dutiful and obedient, which is more than I can say for either of you. Lewin also tells the Frey boys to stay the fuck out of the Cotswood and away from the direwolves or they're going to be sorry. And with that, he turns to Bran and tells him that they need to go see Lord Wyman Manderley. Bran tells Hodor to follow Lewin and they're off for Wyman. On the way, Lewin scolds Bran for being even out in the castle yard altogether. He was supposed to be the Stark in Winterfell, not, not some child. Bran apologizes. He only wanted... I know what you wanted, Maester Lewin said more gently. Would that it could be, Bran. Lewin asks if Bran has questions, and yes, Bran does have one. Are, are they going to talk some more shit, man? Well, Bran isn't going to say shit. He's a kid. He's only going to say courtesies unless he's asked a direct question by Sir Roderick or by Wyman. In the audience chamber, Bran is placed on a high seat behind a table with Lewin and Roderick to his sides. He apologizes to Wyman for being late, but, Wy but Wyman's all like, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to, which is a paraphrase, of course. And then we get our first canonical description of Lord Wyman, which I will read in full. Wyman Manderley had a great booming laugh. It was a small wonder he could not sit a saddle. He looked as if he outweighed most horses. As windy as he was vast. Love it. Wyman proceeds to do the politics, asking for his new customs officers to get confirmed in White Harbor. The old ones, it would seem, were holding back silver for King's Landing, still, rather than pay up to the King of the North. He then offers to have a silverman built in White Harbor. All for Rob, of course. No self-interest involved whatsoever. Additionally, Wyman wants to construct a fleet for the North at White Harbor. Again, no self-interest. He's just in it for King Rob, in it to win it. Bran, though, likes that idea, thinking that might that he might command a warship. However, Roderick only states that they'll send the message on to Rob himself. Later that day, with Wyman still there eating some lunch with them, the Lord of White Harbor brings up the matter of Lady Hornwood. Maybe she wants to become a Manderley again? Get married? Maybe to Wyman himself? Or maybe a son Wendell? Wyman's just asking questions, people, and he's only, only interested in Lady Danella's happiness, not at all to marry her claim to Hornwood lands. Oh no, not that whatsoever. Oh, and completely unrelated, but Wyman's received a letter from Tywin telling him about ransoming his other son, Willis, back to him in exchange for swearing fealty to the Iron Throne. And, you know, he'll so refuse Tywin at Lannister, of course, but maybe Robin goes and liberates Harrenhal and gets Willis out of that haunted castle, and maybe they do a captive exchange very soon if that doesn't, if that isn't the case. Look, we're, we're all Stark fans in this podcast, Stephen included, but I think we can all sort of admire the political moxie that Lord Wyman is demonstrating here, right? Right. God, I love it. While all this is going on, Bran is growing bored, restless, and then stiff from sitting in the same chair all day. Unfortunately, the night brings no relief for Bran as Lady Danella Hornwood arrives. Bran tells her that he's sorry for the loss of her husband and his son, and that Winterfell will remember them and her. Lady Danella thanks Bran for the courtesies, but she'd really rather go take a nap now than do the politics. Everyone then adjourns for the night. 
The next morning, though, there's more politics and further economics. How much harvest are they putting aside? A fifth? A quarter? Oh, and then there's the small, very small matter of the Bolton Bastard. Bolton's Bastard's massing men at the Dread Fort, Lady Horn would warn them. I hope he means to take them south to join his father, the twins. But when I sent to ask his intent, he told me that no Bolton would be questioned by a woman, as if he were trueborn and had a right to that name. Roger Cassell, who sadly will become quite close to Ramsay at the end of A Clash of Kings, is all like, I do not know this man. And Danella says, yeah, that's because Roose Bolton hasn't acknowledged this kid as his bastard. In fact, Ramsay only came to the Dreadfort just a few years ago after Roose's only trueborn son died very, very naturally with no murder involved whatsoever. Ramsay also has a servant named Reek who is almost as bad as Ramsay is. He doesn't bathe and he hunts women with Ramsay, if the true rumors are true. All the same, Lady Danella is concerned that the bastard Bolton is looking at her lands. Brand wants to send 100 men to escort her, but Roger Cassell says, nah, Ramsay's only going to take a peek at Lady Danella's lands. Just a peek. She'll be very, very safe on her own. So safe. But maybe you should get married, Lady Danella? Well, Lady Hornwood is aware of people trying to wed her, or more accurately, wed her claim. And sure, she'll wed if Rob tells her to, but she'd prefer not to marry Moore's Umber. And she really doesn't want to wed Wyman Manderley either, on account of his enormous size. So Roger says that more suitors will come about. You'll see. Lady Danella says, hey... What about you, sir hunk of a man, Roderick Cassell? You do nicely. Roderick, though, gets all flushed and demurs. When, and then when Lady Danella leaves, Lewin and Roderick talk a bit about how the Hornwood inheritance is a danger to Rob's realm. Wait, how is she a danger, Bran asks? Maester Lewin answered, With no direct heir, there are sure to be many claimants contending for the Hornwood lands. The Tallharts, Flints, and Karstarks all have ties to House Hornwood through the female line, and the Glovers are fostering Lord Harris's bastard at Deepwood Mott. The Dreadfort has no claim that I know, but the lands adjoin, and Roose Bolton is not one to overlook such a chance. Bran says, hey, hey, Roderick, Danella seems to be really into your Roderick, if you know what I mean. You guys know what I mean? I, I, I give up. Why not marry her? But Roderick is of too low birth to marry Lady Danella, and he has to look out for Beth's prospects above all. Yikes. So Bran suggests having Lord Hornwood's bastard get legitimized. Okay, yeah, Bran, not the worst idea in the world, Roderick says, and they would make friends with the Glovers. But Lady Danella probably wouldn't want someone actually not related to her to become the next Lord of Hornwood. Lewin says they should consider the idea, though. But Bran asks to be excused because he's bored. Wait, wait, Bran, stop. This is all getting really interesting, guys. Don't go, don't go. And he's gone. Bran heads off to visit Summer in the Godswood, and he finds his direwolf there, and he also finds Shaggy Dog there, too. He calls after Shaggy, but when the but the direwolf departs. Hodor then carries Bran to his favorite spot, the edge of the pool under the heart tree where Big Daddy Ned used to pray. Bran sees ripples across the pool, but no wind. He thinks this strange until Osha jumps out of the pool like some goddamn banshee. Bran asks how she could possibly swim in the pool given how cold it is, and Osha's all like, I'm a North woman. I love the cold. And she wanted to feel the bottom. Well, did she feel the bottom? No. Maybe the pool has no bottom at all. Osha climbs out of the pool, naked and scarred, of course, and asks Bran if if this is the first he's ever seen a naked lady. No, 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 of course not. He's taken many baths with Arya and Sansa. Bran asks after the scars, and Osha reports that the scars are all well-earned. He asks if she got them fighting giants. Nope, she got them fighting men, mostly Night's Watchmen, to be quite honest. Then Osha brings up the fact that Bran's been scuffling with the phrase. Bran asks what Osha's heard. That it's a fool boy who mocks a giant and a mad world when a cripple has to defend him, Osha replies. Bran states that Hodor didn't know that the phrase were mocking him, and besides, Hodor never fights. <laughs> Not yet, anyways. He's got a gentle spirit and gentle hands. Uh, yeah, about those hands, Osha says. They're strong enough to twist a dude's head off at the shoulders. So be real careful with Hodor around the Frey boys. Them kids suck, and they might hurt Hodor, or he might hurt them. Well, not if Summer's around, Bran says. Osha says that the Frey boys are smart if they'll stay clear of Summer then. And then Osha changes topics. You have more than wolf dreams? 
Bran says, absolutely not, but Osha knows him to be lying. She tells Bran to learn to lie better as a prince, but she needs to get back to the kitchens right now. As she departs, Bran, Rue's telling her about his wolf dreams in the first place, but he was carried back to his room by Hodor. He fights sleep for a long time before sleep overtakes him, and he dreams of a werewood looking at him with a three-eyed crow pecking at his face. But then the blast of horns thankfully wakes him from his nightmare. Bran hears loud voices and horses. More guests have come, and half drunk by the noise of them. Oh, yeah, the Umbers are here. Bran pulls himself up the bars and looks at the winter sea. Yes, the Umbers from the Northlands beyond the last river have arrived. The day after the Great John's uncles come to visit with Bran. Morris Crowfoot, named for biting a crow's head off when he thought it was dead, when it thought him dead, and Hothert Horsebane, who old Nan will not tell him why he's named that. We'll find out later in Dance of Dragons. As soon as they sit down, Boris demands to be wed to Lady Hornwood because the Great John is a badass Stark supporter and that's the type of person you want marrying widows or something. Lewin's all like, sorry, Lady Hornwood's still kind of grieving. But Morse is like, ha, I've got the cure for mourning while pointing down his trousers. My dick. Roderick says he'll bring the matter to Robin Tanella, but Moores isn't just here for Lady Hornwood. He's concerned about the wildlings coming south. He needs ships and the Night's Watch hasn't been helpful in stemming the tide of wildling raiders crossing the Bay of Seals. He needs long ships, like he said, and men to crew the boats. The Umbers do not have enough men to man the ships or bring in the harvest at this time. Roderick does the whisker-pulling thing and says, Hey, why don't you work with the Manorlies? They have ship rights, after all. But Moore's Umber goes all like, Yeah, I'm not about to work with some, quote, great waddling sack of suet in the form of Wyman Manderley. Roderick admits that he's fat, but, you know, Wyman ain't dumb. So the Umbers and the Manderleys will work together, or Rob will hear of it. And to Brand's astonishment, Truculent Umbers agreed to do as he commanded, though not without grumbling. Man, I'm loving this shit. Why don't people talk about how awesome this chapter is? Gosh, love it. Next, the Glovers arrive alongside the Tarts, but it turns out it's not the Glovers proper. Instead, it's their maester who's here in the place of Lady Glover. He rules Deepwood Mott in Galbert and Robert's absence. He's only setting a tenth of his harvest aside, but Roderick commands, interesting wording, that he set aside a fifth of it. Roderick then grills at this maester about Laren Snow and, and what he's all about. Afterwards, Lewin says that Leonard Snow may be the key going forward. The Lewin, who's been awfully hard on Bran this chapter, decides to compliment him. One day, you will be a good lord for Winterfell, I think. But Bran, well, he ain't sure about that. No, I won't. Bran knew that he would never be a lord. No more than he could be a knight. Rob's to marry some fray girl. You told me so yourself. And the Walters say the same. He'll have sons, and they'll be the lords of Winterfell after him. Not me. Hey, guys, you know why Bran ain't going to be the lord of Winterfell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, baby, we'll talk about it. Roderick said, though says that Bran should be prepared for anything. His family's all a mess because of wars and, and other shit. His brothers and his nephew, Jory, Rip, are all dead now and he only has Beth. Gee, gee, I wonder if all these Beth Cassell name drops mean anything. Regardless, Brit, Roderick has some life advice for Bran, for us here on the podcast, for everyone. When we speak of tomorrow, nothing is ever certain. The next day, Leobod Tallhart speaks with Bran, Lewin, and Roderick, telling about how the small fuck are just a bunch of fucking peasants, and that his nephew Benefred has been formed as formed a company of lances for the war. They call themselves the Wild Hares after Leobald mocked them as, quote, young rabbits. Bran thinks this sounds awesome, but Roderick ain't so pleased. He tells Leobald to make sure the, quote, wild hearts stay near Torrin Square and don't venture out of it. Leobald promises that this will happen, and then he brings up the Hornwood adherents, because, of course, his solution is kind of an interesting one. Maybe Danella will want her 10-year-old nephew, Baron, to come to Castle Hornwood as a fosterling. You see, Danella's sister-in-law was a Hornwood, and he might be up for the task of becoming the heir to Hornwood. Hell, he might even take the name for the price of being named the heir, question mark? Lewin asks, no, 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 nothing like that. He would only take the name so the Hornwood name would continue, of course, Leobold says. Then Bran, now knowing the words, says that he'll bring the matter to Rob and Lady Hornwood. Leobold, surprised, is grateful for Bran's words. And then Bran notices the man pitying him. And he hates that and him. 
When Leopold is gone, Lewin says the offer might be the best compromise solution, but Broderick thinks that a 10-year-old kid is going to end up in conflict with the Umbers or Boltons. They need to be careful and give Rob the best counsel before he makes the final decision on who is going to inherit the Hornwood lands. Lewin agrees, but then puts in that Rob may want to have a Riverlander marry Lady Hornwood to cement his alliance with his war buddies fighting the Lannisters. Maybe the Blackwoods, maybe the Freys. Well, Bran is all about shipping off one or both of the waters freighted off to Castle Hornwood, but that's not happening anytime soon. As the days go on, more ravens arrive, stating that Ramsay Snow, the Mormonts, Karstarks, Lox, and Flints won't be making it for the Harvest Feast. They'd heard from everyone except for Howland Reed and the Kerwins. But Lord Kerwin's son, Clay, arrived one morning. Clay had been a friend of Bran and his brothers, and he seems a good kid, asking if Bran should be called, quote, Prince Bran. Well, Bran doesn't care, but then Clay asks a curious question. Did Bran receive the letter from Stannis? Letter? What letter? Well, the letter had proclaimed Stannis king and proclaimed that Cersei and Jaime were Joffrey's parents. The king slayer for her father? Imagine that. For a moment, Bran felt as though he could not breathe. A giant hand was crushing his chest. He felt as though he was falling and clutched desperately at Dancer's reins. Everyone knows that Bran looks ill, and Bran feigns being okay, declaring that Rob will beat Joffrey. He retreats back in the stables with blood rushing in his ears. At night, Bran prays for dreamless sleep, but the gods don't let him have it. Instead, Bran is exposed to another horror dream of the three-eyed crow pecking at his face again as he weeps and pleads. But the crow is merciless. The three-eyed crow pecks out Bran's left eye and then his right eye. Blind now, Bran feels the crow pecking at the middle of his head. Bran screams as the beak feels like an axe cutting into his head into pieces. And then Bran can see again and sees that the crow has come away with bone and bits of brain and flesh in his beak. What he saw made him gasp in fear. He was clinging to a tower miles high and his fingers were slipping, nails scrabbling at the stone, his legs dragging him down. Stupid, useless, dead legs. Help me, he cried. A golden man appeared in the sky above him and pulled him up. The things I do for love, he murmured softly as he tossed him out, kicking into empty air. And that is A Clash King's brand two. G- guys, guys, why? Oh, why do people never cite this as a great chapter in Song of Ice and Fire? Okay, I get it. You get your house, the undying, Ned's death, the red wedding, Quentin's O scene. But this is like a Song of Ice and Fire in a nutshell. I mean, you got the wars and the politics of the realm with magic awaiting in dream. You know, what an amazing chapter. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting too overexcited and over eager here. What do you guys both think? I agree completely. This is a sorely underrated chapter that plays host to all of George's strengths. He got terrific character work for Bran as he struggles to play his public role as prince, even as both knight and ward are calling to him from within. He got great supporting characters like Wyman Manderley and the Umber Uncles. You got a horrific dream sequence at the end, always welcome in my house. But above all, you got the politics of the newly independent North. This is the meat of the chapter, the key in terms of how it sets up King Bran, and it's a topic of great interest to our guest. So there is this cliche that often separates out, you know, politics and non-politics, the honorable warrior, the scheming conspirator, the sort of hard North versus the decadent South. And this is the chapter that explodes all that. And honestly, it's not a surprise, because if you've read the history of, say, medieval Scotland, you know that just because it's cold and there's not a lot of people doesn't mean that things can't get Machiavellian in a hurry. And here we have this sort of wonderful harvest feast. It's straight out of any fantasy novel. And instead of everyone just being what they look like on the surface, you know, the bluff umber warrior, the jolly fat man, etc. Like, (laughs) under the surface, this harvest feast is as uncomplicated and unpolitical as, like, a Corleone wedding. (laughs) 
Like they're all here to eat, but as Lewin, uh, sorry, as as Roderick says himself, like no one travels this distance just to eat a meal. They're here because they want stuff, and you can see in microcosm all of the political tensions that are going to, uh, you know. I'll, I'll let Jeff interrogate me about this at length, are going to ultimately rip apart the North and prevent them from mobilizing their kingdom to defend itself. The sort of the sub-theme of this chapter is really, it's the home front. It's preparedness. It's what are you doing to prepare for the winter? What are you doing to prepare for the war? How, you know, is, is everyone uh, on the same page or is everyone out for themselves? And, like, sadly, the answer is the latter. <laughs> you can see that with the harvest. You can see that with all of the little, like, special favors that each of the houses want. And then, most of all, you can see it in the Hornward Crisis because it's this power vacuum that is threatening to destabilize the entire eastern half of the kingdom because everyone knows, like... Anyone who can get their hands on that lands, you know, if the Umbers get it, the Umbers are going to be the biggest house. If the Karstarks get it, they're going to be the biggest house. You know, the, the Manderleys roll up in style because they're trying to really say, we are the second biggest house in the North. Don't anyone step to us. Uh, and of course, like out in the darkness is Ramsey Bolton. Excuse me. Snow. <laughs> um... Who is, you know, not going to play by any normal political rules. He's just going to go ahead and do whatever the fuck he wants and bring chaos and bloodshed in his wake. Yeah, he absolutely is. And, and you know, to kind of talk about another thing that we get here, you know, Steve, talk, you talked about how the North has this fan perception of being the pristine place where people are setting their differences aside and all unite for a common cause versus the decadent South, when, when that's not actually the case as this, as this chapter lays bare. And there's also another kind of thing that we also see, too, and this overarching storytelling device that's bled out into the real world that everyone should, you know, put their interests aside and, quote, do the right thing for the good of all. And, and you know, not to rag too much on Lord of the Rings too much, because, you know, I, I love those books and, and the movies. But that's basically what the books, but especially the movie's theme for our political actors are. You know, like the movie uh, Return of the King wants us to roll our eyes at Theoden's reluctance to immediately ride in aid of Gondor when Gandalf advises him to do so. You know, flashing over to Westeros, the lords of the north and every other part of Westeros didn't, you know, rise to prominence and power by playing nice with everyone else. Wyman Manerly wants a silverman and permission to build, a f to build a fleet because it's going to create jobs in White Harbor and center the north economically in White Harbor. The Umbers want ships and field hands to protect the people living under Umber Dominion from wilding incursion and to bring in the harvest, which both feeds the people and, of course, benefits the Umbers economically. The Tallhearts want the right to raise a private army ostensibly to aid Rob Stark, but a standing militia in the north untouched by war in the south could prove awfully fucking powerful after the war is done. Yeah, I, I get it. When the Colbins rise, the lone wolf, the lone wolf dies, etc. All those themes that Mars is embedding in the story. And I get that, that putting the survival of humanity ahead of the individual interests is a good, fine, fine. But these guys are doing their jobs, prioritizing their own interests, and maybe the umber, manderly, tall heart, small folk get some trickle-down benefit along the way. And when the next war for the dawn is done and the normal politics reasserts itself, you know, maybe these small folk are going to, maybe these small folk are going to want to have some Hothers, Wymans, Leobolds, and Morses around to survive the aftermath of winter. No, no, not the actual lords or the people who are wanting to be lords. They're all fucking dead or about to die by the end of A Dance of Dragons. The archetypes, of course. 
think there's an idea we've talked about before, all three of us, that we don't particularly like that seems to have been reinforced by the show that in the face of the apocalypse, what you need to do is give up politics. When mm-hmm. the truth is, in the face of the apocalypse, you need to be really good at politics. That's the moment more <laughs> yeah. than ever where you need to be good at organization and having a narrative and getting past old wounds, at least for the moment. And I think you you see that articulated in this in this chapter that it's it's not about it's not about the North, you know, purely embracing cynicism and everyone out for themselves. Although in the, in the face of winter and war and starvation, we might see more of that. But the, the, the Stark narrative holds true precisely because it's most powerful in these moments, because the Stark narrative is built around the idea of we are the winter town, we are the, the candle in the darkness, we are who you come to when winter is at your door, when the others are at your door, and you have nothing left. It, it, it's built around that idea, so but even, even as people try to gain access to it in ways that are as cynical and underhanded as anyone else, you still have that narrative that they are cleaving to and trying to honor. It's like, yeah, the, the Manderleys you know, are, are trying to impress everyone, but what they're ultimately trying to do is uh, prove their, prove that their their own ambitions take place under the Stark umbrella, and they're always careful to say that. Wyman Mandalay is always careful to couch his ambitions, and this is what I can do for the Starks. This is what I can do for my new king, for my new kingdom. He's not presenting himself as a rival, and as Stephen says, Ramsay is the real exception to that rule, and the real hint early on that the Boltons are going to be irreconcilables. But all the, the hustle and bustle at Winterfell is filtered through our POV. It's filtered through how Bran's relationships to the proceedings has changed since his fall, and this builds on all the great character work we were talking about in Bran 1. Once, before, as he says, he would have been excited by this. This would have been the highlight of his whole life, but now he feels he can't take part. And of course he is taking part throughout this chapter, but it's not the role he longed for, the role he was dreaming for, the role in his head that he links with childhood dreams and innocence, the role of a knight. And part of Bran growing up, going through his coming-of-age story as the secret protagonist of A Song of Ice and Fire, is learning his lordly responsibilities. And part of it is learning to deal with his disability, affected as a fact of his adult life. And in his mind, the two are linked. Trying to get away from his lordly responsibilities also becomes about getting away from his disability. It's no wonder that as his story proceeds and he comes into contact with Jojen and then Bloodraven, he links the magical side of things with the possibility of getting that old life back, knighthood childhood, the ability to walk and climb and fight. When he gets to Bloodraven in the cave, he wants his legs restored. That's what he asks for. And Bloodraven says, no, kid, that's not why you're here. I'm here to teach you to fly. Your physical body, like Bloodraven, the 125-year-old sorcerer who was barely a, a husk of a living being at that point, says, no, your, your flesh is done. That's not what you're here for. But Bran wants to get back to that. And so much of what we see, of course, in the story in the magical and political world is people trying to get back to their childhood to, like, restore the, the faults that happened to them then. You see that in various ways with Tyrion and Stannis and Theon, etc. And under the surface with Bran is his longing for his family to return, given that, as he put it in Book 1, it feels like they all just abandoned him while he slept. And Bran, of course, being as young as he is, can't really process all this at once, even adults to struggle with all of this. So he zeroes in on the physical activity in the yard as, like, this perfect synecdoche for all he's lost, this, this life he was going to live that he now can't get back. And he wants just a glimpse, as he says, just to look. But dawdling to watch, that's exactly what makes Bran late for his princely duties. In case he didn't get the dynamic at work, that's George sitting it up perfectly. Bran being lost in this dream and this nostalgia makes him late for his actual role, for his adult life, for the job he has to perform. As we said in Bran 1, George does a terrific job of embedding uh, the winged wolf versus the Stark and Winterfell struggle in every little detail. Bran stands out here, not only as a prince... But as a disabled prince, specifically, with a companion, Hodor, who is frequently targeted for mockery in the way that Bran himself now is. And the Walders, as in Bran 1, 
are just the flies in the ointment. Like their kinsmen in the Night of the Laughing Tree story, they reveal the bullying instincts behind the shining face of chivalry, the knighthood that Bran wanted to join. What they're doing is not, you know, protecting the, the young and the innocent and the defenseless as you're supposed to. What they're doing is policing class borders to keep the powerless in line. And one, one of the reasons I like the Wilders, the Wilders so much as characters is how George continually frame, frames them not just as uniquely awful little pricks, although they are, <laughs> but as mirrors of the society that produced them. Like, they act like, and Little Walter even says explicitly, this is how we're supposed to behave. This is how we behave at the twins. Treating peasants, disabled and otherwise, like horses, is central to these kids' worldview. And that's why Little Walter looks at Lewin, too, with scorn, thinking himself too good to be challenged by a mere maester. And as always with the with the young phrase, we see them reducing power to, like, the most brute and simple forms. Like, he, he bangs this armor and says, yeah, your wolf can't get past this. It's all rooted in that plate and steel, because that's what protects Freys from not just wolf teeth. It protects them from peasants, like Hodor, armed with sticks. They might be bigger than the Freys, but the Freys have that plate and steel. They know that's what keeps them safe. And that's little Walder giving away the game, which is what he always does. Big Walder, the smart one. He knows enough to pretend to be abashed when Lewin comes up. Oh, we were just having a jape with Hodor, and he, he knows enough to look sorry. But that's not the same as genuine contrition, and Little Walter can't even manage that. He just looks peevish, as Bran says. And I just I love how these, these two are, are constantly being framed, like Ramsay, as, as the problem, as the giveaway that this, this humming-along system is, is going to start to break down and not really work. You make a great point. I think like there's there's a little bit of supporting evidence in that as the Walters come over to Bran and Hodor— it's not the phrase or any of these or the Boltons that are there like laughing along with the Walters. It's the Manderleys. It's the Manderley lordlings that are out there have, thinking this is this is great fun, right? The, a house that we are sympathetic to and we come especially sympathetic to in A Dance with Dragons. And I think that's talking about what's happening here. This is a critique of the class structure that's going on in Westeros that Hodor, because of his disability, and Bran, because of his disability, are both targets for mockery by, by the by the nice classes by the by the noble classes yeah the, the good ones aren't that good right exactly i mean we, we're sympathetic to the to the mandalays because they're they're, they're fucking awesome in a, in a dance with dragons but they're not any different from this the people that they're from the people that we're supposed to hate necessarily in terms of like looking at you know a character like brandon character like hodor even in dance there's that critical moment when wyman says to davos yeah we just killed a random peasant criminal in place of you i don't know his name and davos asks like about him and wyman's like why are you bothering to bring that guy up. He's not important. And that's that's a little chill is supposed to be set at this moment that, oh, even though we like Wyman Manderley a lot more than the Boltons, he's not, you know, there's a reason we see something like that through Davos's eyes. So Davos realizes, oh, at some level, my people aren't people to you. And that's, I think that's, as we've been saying throughout this this episode, we'll keep saying, it's, it's the political complication of the North that makes it interesting beyond just the, the image. It's just adding a layer of ambiguity to the North that we're really kind of we, we got exposed to in Bran's sixth chapter from A Game of Thrones with all the Northern mm-hmm. Lords showing up and we're getting it again here with all of the kind of the, the B team showing up in Winterfell to, to come <laughs> talk with uh, with Bran about them. But I want to talk a little bit more about the Walters because, you know, we can't talk about the Walters enough on the Nightcast podcast. And I wanted to, again, harken back to your great theory that you talked about in our first in our episode on Bran 1 from Clash of Kings about how Lothar Frey was the mentor of Big Walter and how like these two kids sort of parallel Lothar Frey and Bastard Walter Frey from A Storm of Swords. You know, I love how, I mean, I love and I hate how shitty little Walter is. These threats are unseemly, Mr. Lewin says, and I'll hear no more of them. Is this how you behave with the twins, Walter Frey? If I want to. <laughs> and to your point that Big Walter like acts contrite, you know, it works well with how our friends of Frey are described by Catelyn in A Storm of Swords. 
Lothafrey was the model of courtesy, reminiscing warmly about Lord Hoster, offering Catelyn gentle condolences on the loss of Brandon Rickon, praising Edmure for the victory at the stone mill, and thanking Rob for the, quote, swift, sure justice he had meted out to Rickard Karstark. Lothar's bastard brother, Walter Rivers, was another matter, a harsh, sour man with old Lord Walter's suspicious face. You know, I, what you were, we had talked about a little bit before about how, in our little mini episode, about how Big Walter Frey is kind of the politician, right? He's the guy who's able to mouth the courtesies. And if you look at his, quote, apology, it's basically like, sorry if you were offended is basically yeah, the way that Big Walter Frey is apology. acting. Exactly. And that's totally political, right? It's it's showing Big Walter's political instincts at work here and that he could apologize without actually apologizing, which is a key political instinct as we are finding in um in recent times and past times in all times in terms of po- how politicians are operating. Whereas little water is basically just the, just a fucking brood in this chapter. Big water is the, is the politician. So again, we're having those two faces, the phrase on dis- of house Frey on display here in brand two, as we similarly saw in brand one, we will see in brand three, four, five and six and seven. Big Walter knows how to get the blame off him, which is a very right. useful skill. We see that in Dance with Dragons when he manages to frame the Manderlees for his pretty blatant murder of his cousin. <laughs> it's 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 very useful, and Little Walter attracts attention and blame and wants to. And yeah, it's it's those two faces of House Frey that they don't know how to hide, which is what makes them very useful. And it's they they keep coming back. Like you see in this chapter that both Lewin and Osha are frame them as representative of social ills. Like these kids are the problem. Is what both both of them really <laughs> communicate. Like Lewin basically says, you are you are betraying the values that I'm trying to instill in the next generation, that I'm trying to instill in Bran. Your lord is supposed to protect the innocent and the small flock Hodor, and he's furious at these kids. And then you have that great little moment with Osha, where she says, "Yeah, that everyone's saying what a what a what a mad world this is when a, when a, a cripple has to defend a giant from from these these random asshole squires." And it's like it's, she says it very cynically, and it's like, yeah, it's hard not to feel just like depressed about this entire interaction because as we said in brand one the phrase are supposed to be in winterfell as a bridge as harmony between the north and the riverlands creating this new kingdom and all this discord just doesn't speak well and it's important we see this i think before any of the explicitly political scenes with the northern lords this sets the standard and sets the standard in terms of brand's generation like this is the context in which he has to operate and it's the bar he's going to have to be clearing as he evolves into a leader in his own right. And he does, even at this childish level, he is, there are still good signs with Bran that he sticks up for Hodor, as a true knight should. That's that's what makes you a true knight, not, you know, the use of your legs, but but the values about sticking up for people. And unlike the Walders, his apology to Lewin is genuine when he says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be late and to delay everyone. You can tell he means it and he's thinking about his relationship to these other human beings and thinking of them as human beings, which the <laughs> Walders just aren't doing. That is a really good point. I, I hadn't thought of the fact that, like, the the kids are even like a, a synecdoche for the for the adults. It's like it's the same dynamics. Like you know, twenty you know ten fifteen years from now, these are the people you're gonna have to be dealing with. They're not gonna be they're not gonna be more mature. They're just gonna be bigger. <laughs> exactly you know? right. And you, yeah, you see that with the older Starks and then the older phrase. Like you look at some like Edwin and Blackwalder or or that that just nonsense man Ryman Frey. Just that these the, that's what these kids are going to grow into, which is you know, Wyman Manderley puts that in his most, you know, brutal uh flourished fashion in a dance with dragons. He's going to grow he would have grown into a Frey anyway. <laughs> um but yeah, you see that the the, the model they're working within and how different it is. And that's that's what really makes these his characters interesting. But then yes, our, our probably our, our favorite of all the supporting characters I think in this chapter, Wyman Manderley shows up. And so we get the the meat of this chapter, the meetings with the various nobles of the north. And it's interesting 
to compare these nobles to the crew of the, you know, to the lords around Rob. It's a much different crew, because the lords around Rob tend to be martially inclined, both in their character and their contribution to the plot, because that's who they are. That's why they're there. They went off to war to lead their men into combat. And this is this is a very different character. Here we're looking at home front politics, the politics of keeping the fire going, as Stephen said, of making sure Rob has a base to return to, and of making his kingdom a practical reality. That is a different set of skills and arguably a whole different set of values, and you see that right away with Wyman Manderley. We met him very briefly in a Catalan chapter in Book 1, but this is really where George establishes his character before expanding heavily on him in A Dance with Dragons. Wyman has a, just a very keen political mind. I think you can see George cross-referencing a lot of what he's doing with Tyrion early on in the same book, that Wyman has the same strong grasp of institutions, of how institutions change to follow political changes and how he can benefit every step of the way. And he, he seems to understand better than anyone in the North that independence is only partially a matter of the primal young warrior king stomping his Southron foes into the dust. <laughs> it's also a matter of, of currency, both literal and metaphorical, of ships, of Rob Stark's name and face and cause stamped on every inch of power in the North so no one ever forgets who's in charge. This transition is crucial not only to provide the fledgling kingdom with hard power and its own infrastructure, but in terms of image, in terms of Varus's shadow on the wall. In part, creating an independent kingdom is about acting like you already did that, like you already are independent, putting your, your governing foot forward with maximum confidence and setting up institutions and infrastructures almost ahead of your ability to back them up. You, 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 you kind of have to get the ball rolling and constantly keep the momentum going or you're going to shudder to a halt. You're going to seem like another doomed pretender, to borrow a phrase from A Dance mm -hmm. with Dragons. Precisely, and we we do know that they do have some of the infrastructure available. The problem is that right now, like the silvermen and the the silver people, the and the the customs officers in White Harbor are still sending silver down to, to King's Landing, so they're kind of working against this new kingdom well, already. Because they're royalist officials from the old regime, right? And you also have to imagine too that the coinage is still that they have right now is still bearing Robert Robert's Baratheon, face, maybe yeah. Robert's face. So it, it is kind of flying against the simple politics of. Of of the north of northern independence, you know, I, I think that George is borrowing quite heavily from Roman history here and how crucial coinage and minerals are in creating the symbols of power. You know, we've got several, you know, historical points here. I'll just touch on very briefly. You know, during the Roman Civil War period, both Mark Anthony and Octavius, which is the future Augustus, both both of these guys as imperial claimants minted their own coinage, but their faces on it. And then one later Roman emperor by the name of Caracalla had the coins of another claimant to the throne, his own brother Geta, melted down to erase Geta's memory. Like this, the coinage is really important here. And, you know, this is something that we get repeated by various emperors and would-be Roman emperors. And it seems so boring on the surface. You know, who gives a shit who's on the coinage, whose face is on the coinage? But it's not boring and you should give a shit and I'm going to explain why you should. The smallest of the small folks who would carry only the simplest groat or pennies they still bear the imprimatur of the king who is always in and they should always know who their sovereign is. And, you know, the Blackfires of all the people, you know, who suck primarily, were wise to this notion as we find out from the Mystery Night where Dunk is, is having this conversation during the tourney and he's looking at this coin and says, quote, the face of the coin was a young, clean shaven, handsome. King Ares was bearded on his coins, the same as old King Aegon. King Darren, who came between them, had been clean shaven, but this wasn't him. The coin did not appear worn enough to be from before Aegon the Unworthy. Damon, he blurred out. It says Damon. Th there was never any King Damon, though, only the Pretender. 
Damon Blackfire struck his own coinage during his rebellion. And I know, you know, Steve, we've gone back and forth about who was, uh, where the actual coins were minted, and we can have that conversation here yeah. in a moment. But the Blackfires and Wyman Manderley, beyond that, know the symbolic power of which face is adorning the coins and how that, even that small, simple thing, lends legitimacy to a place that, you know, there's not a lot of literacy going on. Northern money minted by Northmen with the king of the North's face in the middle is a shadow on the wall. It's a symbol of legitimacy. It helps to drive this narrative forward that the North is precisely independent from the South, that they have their own coinage, they have their own customs officers, they have their own fleet. So I want to jump in here and talk about some real world history of money, because yeah. I've been reading this great book called Making Money by Christine Dessan, which if you're interested in medieval currency, I highly recommend. And one of the things that they talk about is it, it, it's both an exercise in soft and hard power that the mm-hmm. kings of England, when they were striking coins, would literally have their uh, their town criers go out into the square and, like, proclaim that the coin was not just, like, you know, available for the public, but that it was just. Hmm. Right? And, you know, they would hold these trials of the new currency. And if you fucked up the new currency, right, because it had the king's face on it and the king's name on it, that made it treason. Hmm. And if you were a mint official and you fucked up, you were going to die horribly. Uh, it's part of the reason why, like, the, the punishments doled out to uh, coin forgers were so horrible. Like, pouring melted lead into people's, uh, you know, the, the middle of their bones, that kind of thing. Um, but the, the reason why all of this stuff is important is it is this enormous exercise in power. The first thing is you have to convince people in the middle of a civil war, hey, that precious metal that you're hoarding, right, that, that, you know, might be the difference between life and death, give it to me, right? And I'll turn it into coins that if the wrong person wins the Civil War, not only won't be worth anything, but will be enough to get you convicted of treason. Hmm. And when you do what's called free uh, minting, when you turn any, coin, you know, precious metal that people give you into currency, you also take a cut. So it's mm-hmm. fueling the war effort, it's fueling the machinery of state, but it's also this massive exercise in public compliance of getting people to agree. The other thing that's really fascinating about all of this is, in addition to like, you know, saying that these coins are just, right, it's not just about the metal in them. It's saying, okay, these things are now valid. You can use them to pay taxes, you can use them to pay debts, if you get, you know, caught for committing a crime, you can pay a fine. If you get sued, you can use it to, to settle the court case. And that's why in the law, the actual currency content didn't matter. It was the, the count of the coins. Hmm. And this is what allowed so many monarchs to get away with debasing the currencies. They said, no, it's not the silver that matters. It is my face and my face <laughs> saying, I will accept this in exchange you know, this coin as payment for taxes. And if you try to give me anything else, you go to jail. So Wyman is absolutely understanding that as long as, like, the North is paying with Southern coins, it isn't really independent. You know, it's it's not going to have enough coins to do it itself, and all that money starts flowing to the South uh, instead. 
Whereas, you know, if the North is minting its own coins, it really is independent because it means that it's making its own decisions on taxation, on the legal system, uh, on the payment of debt. Just so it really is, practically speaking, independent. Exactly. As, we, as you're saying, it's both uh, a logistical articulation of power, but also just an expression of, of power publicly. Mm-hmm. That it, it's, it's how you build the state, but it's also how you demonstrate that your state exists, that it can undertake such a project is, is, is proof of it, its worth. And it's a way of normalizing it, because if you establish Rob's face everywhere as the basic currency of every transaction across your kingdom, then it starts to seem like the norm and attempts to take away the independence of the North starts to seem like the deviation. And that's when you've won. That's when you have won the hearts and minds politically, when it starts to seem like, no, that's the normal thing. Why would you fight another war to get it back when this is how it is? And that's the you, that crossover point is something you have to try to uh, uh, arise in people at every level. And Wyman clearly gets that. Not only does he get it, he's uniquely poised to make it happen, to take advantage of this moment because of the resources offered by White Harbor, the mouth of the North, as Davos calls it. Wyman can put down the down payment. Wyman can start get all these these uh, operations moving. Wyman knows who to replace these guys with. Wyman has his own people in mind. He can do it. And then he knows every other house in the North has to come to him in terms of making the exchanges and understanding how it's done or disputes. Like he has, he starts getting his fingers into everybody. That mouth must be fed. Wyman is an ambitious politician. George shows that very bluntly when he's making his play for Lady Hornwood's hand, and George keeps intercutting that with Wyman devouring food. <laughs> it's not subtle. It's like with Denethor in Return of the King, devouring food while sending men into combat. But Wyman is also a genuine patriot who is all patriot who is all in on the independent North. And we see that when he refuses to even consider Tywin's offer of Wyless for peace for staying out of the war. Wyman's going to commit his forces. I, I just wanted to throw in a couple interesting things. So, one, personnel is absolutely important. Like, Wyman, uh-huh. you know, Wyman comes having already done this. He's asking for, you know, legitimacy, not permission. And so, absolutely, every single one of those appointees now owes him. Uh, and... You know, in terms of resources, like, he does actually have something really unique, which is he's got, like, vertical integration, right? He owns the silver mines. He's going to turn it into silver. That's extra money that he gets because, you know, once the coins are freely minted, not only does he keep a cut, but then those coins are are technically his. So, you know, the, the way that I would put it is there's an old adage by... Uh, Woodrow Wilson about doing well by doing good and doing good by doing well. And that is absolutely Wyman Manderley's like ethos, which is like what what is good for Wyman Manderley will be good for the North and vice versa. He's not going to like act to undermine it unless he has to. Um, you know, we'll talk about that with how he uh, <laughs> interacts with the Hornwood crisis. But, like, he's absolutely going to put his own house forward at every opportunity as the most loyal vassals who, in exchange, should be given the biggest cut of everything. Well, at the same time that he's putting himself as this northern loyalist, you have to consider the cultural framework that Wyman is operating from. He's he a southern, his, his family at least is a southern family worshipping the faith of the seven. But still, you know, Wyman is kind of leveraging the economic and military benefit that White Harbor can provide in exchange for things that he personally needs. And this is where the feudal structure really comes into play, how the personal and the overarching political kind of fuse together, right? And it's all about reciprocal favors. You do this for me, I do this for you, and it keeps going that way for generations. 
you have that that tit for tat sort of thing, but there's also that kind of unstated threat. I want to say, and that yeah. all oh, of yeah. the good work that Wyman's doing on Rob's behalf or could do on Rob's behalf, it could all come to a very abrupt end if he doesn't get his way. If he doesn't, if his son is not, if his son Willis isn't gotten out of jail, and that's that's interesting, right? I think that that's where we're talking about when it comes to the ambiguity of Northern politics. In that, yeah, we're all like, hell yeah, get Wyman's awesome. He's great. He's a great politician. He has his North Remember speech from A Dance with Dragons, but he's First and foremost, a great politician who is leveraging the wide economic and military benefit that he can bring to Robstark and bring to the North in order to get some personal stuff done. He needs his son out of jail quick, fast, in a hurry. He wants to make himself indispensable, which is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, he can grow the Stark cause and make it something it would never be without his input. On the other hand, he wants the Stark cause to depend on him. He wants Rob's rise to constantly be depending on the Manderleys being involved because he knows that that means he can get everything out of it. And I don't think it's, I don't think Wyman would ever, I think Wyman would rather, but ultimately rather die than actually betray the Stark cause. And that might be, might well be what happens. But I think the threat of it always has to be there so he can benefit, he can act for the benefit of his house. Because it's not just him and the Stark's relationship. He's constantly got to be jostling elbows with everyone else. And he's in a unique position because of his house's history, as we see in A Dance with Dragons. This in-between role we're talking about perfectly suits the man who sits on the border between North and South and whose family history is all about that crossover point. It explains why he's scorned by some of the other Northern Lords, why the Umbers talk, talk shit about him. They, they, they guys in, you know, the, the cracks about his weight. But what's really going on there is him as a political outsider, as someone whose family roots are outside the North, and as someone who is very rich and good at getting richer, which none of the rest of them are particularly good at. And that's the very sore point, clearly, with Wyman versus the rest of the North. And yeah, especially student, the Umbers in this chapter. Absolutely. As you've written about before, Stephen, there's there's not really much new land to work with here, that ultimately yeah. the Manderley's rise is always going to come at someone else's expense. And that's something that the, the, the Starks have to manage. But, you know, in, in terms of our POV, to bring it back to Bran, Wyman, I think, is, is a really clear, positive role model for Bran in this chapter. There's they, they, they personally get along like Wyman is very nice to Bran when he's late. Like, you mm-hmm. know, no prince is ever late. We just came early. Just a very nice way of smoothing things over and establishing, no, I'm your friend. And I want to get along with you. I understand that Wyman seems to understand that something that a lot of the other Northern Lords don't, which is that despite having a disability, Bran might well have a really important role to play in Northern politics when he grows up. And Wyman Manderley clearly is like, I would like to have this kid on my side, please. <laughs> yeah. Because so he remembers that I was the one who was nice to him, you know, years down the line. And Wyman himself does not fit the martial archetype that Bran is trying to fit. He has to be carried around everywhere. And yet... Even the people who hate him clearly respect him because they regard him as a threat. So this is a good model for Bran. Hey, you can still carry yourself with great weight and fanfare and have jugglers and knights and singers all around you. Even if you yourself don't fit the martial archetype of a knight, you can be effective. And here's a way to do it. And Bran likes his ideas. When Wyman brings up warships, Bran thinks to himself, that sounds a splendid idea. I always say it like it's like a squeaky Goonies voice <laughs> when I'm doing Bran's thoughts. It's like, oh, a, a splendid notion. Gee Willis. Exactly. Bran is a very kind of wonderfully corny character that way. He he seizes on Wyman's ideas for kind of childish reasons, but Bran's instincts, I think, are pretty good throughout this chapter. Even if it's for childish reasons, he kind of knows who he can trust and who he can't. And I think, like, Stephen, you brought up the point when you were doing this analysis back five years ago about all of the parallels between Bran and Wyman specifically in this chapter. Oh, yeah. I mean, it... You know, Wyman is like a great example of like, hey, someone with a disability isn't stupid. Because they've got a disability. And he's like, kind of a signal to Bran. It's like, hey, you could be this when you grew up. Like, you're not going to be a knight. 
sorry, it sucks. I know, I've been there. But, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean you're going to be powerless. And, you know, people might look down on you, but, you know, if you've got the money and you've got the political influence, you know, they can they can look down on you from below you. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> and, like, when Bran rides his horse into the hall, that is pretty much exactly what's happening. Like, people are, are you know are sort of saying, like, you know, oh, why didn't this cripple kill himself? You know, that's what he should have done. But he's like, yeah, but I'm still the one on the horse. Mm -hmm. And you're the one who has to make nice to me. So, you know, he is a potential model for Bran to follow if Bran can think his way clear to doing so. And it's 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 a difficult needle to thread, and not everyone makes it out with as, as happy a story as Wyman Manderley has for, for varying Oof, definitions of happy. Man. Uh, at least he, you know, at least he gets to control some aspect of his life, unlike poor Lady Hornwood, who makes for, for a much sadder story than her Ooh, cousin yeah. Wyman. Not, not only did she lose both husband and son to the opening battles of Rob's campaign, which is just like a sign that the fates have marked you for tragedy, but she can't even be left to grieve in peace. She has to just fend off marriage offers, and worse, from everyone around her. And it, it's a case study, I think, in, in the difference between the individual and the role they play in the big picture. I love that George, like, really seizes upon this and makes sure Bran understands this that yes Lady Hornwood the individual is this exhausted sad gentle person who just wants to be left alone she shows up with like six guys who are also tired and it's such a contrast to the Manderleys but as Roderick and Lewin point out what she represents is a threat she represents a threat to the peace of Rob's realm she is a problem that they have to solve they can't just be nice to her even though that's instinctively what all three of them want to do they have to deal with the big picture of who she is politically, and who she is politically is this this vacuum that everyone is trying to fill. Right, and you know, kind of an even sadder note around Lady Hornwood is that the only guy she's actually really interested in is Sir Roderick Cassell, but but he can't marry Lady Danilo, as his, as he talks about. But Bran asks, like, why can't you marry her? The old knight put a hand on Bran's arm. A kindly thought, my prince, but I am only a knight, and besides, too old. I might hold her lands for a few years, but as soon as I died, Lady Hornwood would find herself back in the same mire, and Beth's prospects might be perilous as well. So what George is communicating here is that the class structure of Westeros is preventing a man in rightly class who is, by all, you know, objective analysis, is the best person to marry Lady Danella. But he can't because, you know, he marrying her, is, he can't marry someone above his station. And also the fact that Roderick Cassell's marriage to Lady Danella would endanger those below Lord Lady Knightley's status in the form of his only daughter, Beth Cassell. And, you know, that that's that's sad. I mean, like Beth Cassell becomes this another figure of, of tragedy in the in the northern storylines. We find out at the end of Theon's story in A Clash of Kings and all those questions of class and gender and inheritance. It gives me the opportunity to talk about how inheritance works in Westeros. Again, a subject that you should give a shit about because it's super fucking important to the story and super fucking important to how it actually happened in history, as Stephen will talk about a little bit. Because if there's something we can learn from this chapter, inheritance is a really thorny issue. And this, this topic is, is interesting to me, obviously, but as you can tell, but it's also interesting to George, too, because you know George responded to a fan question back in 1999 about why Danella's sister couldn't inherit from her. And it's among the longest so spake Martin answers that George ever gave. I mean, there's a lot of the times George will answer with like simple like, no, yes, we'll find out in later books. But here, George went for like paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. And I'll just read like a little bit of what George had to say about this, about how inheritance works in the case like the Hornwoods. Here's a quote. Quote, well, the short answer is that the laws of inheritance in the seven kingdoms are modeled on those in real medieval history. 
which is to say they were vague, uncodified, subject to varying interpretations and often contradictory. A man's eldest son was his heir. After that, the next eldest son, then the next, etc. Daughters were not considered while there was a living son, except in Dorne, where females had equal right of inheritance according to age. After the sons, most would say that the eldest daughter is next in line, but there may be an argument that from the dead man's brothers, say, does a male sibling or a female child take precedence? Each side has a, quote, claim. What if there are no children, only grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Is precedence or proximity the more important principle? Do bastards have any rights? What about bastards who have been legitimized? Do they go in at the end after the true-born kids or according to birth order? What about widows? And what about the will of the deceased? Can a lord disinherit one son and name his youngest son as an heir or even a bastard? There are no clear-cut answers either in Westeros or in real medieval history. Things were often decided on a case-by-case basis. A case might set a precedent for later cases, but as often as not, the precedents conflicted as much as the claims. So that's the complexity that's at work with Lady Hornwood's heir. Should she be married to the Manderleys and earn the gratitude of Rob's most economically prosperous vassal? Well, maybe, but Lady Hornwood doesn't seem keen on marrying Wyman or his son. Maybe she should be married to the Umbers then, securing a truculent northern house. Again, Lady Hornwood isn't precisely down with the Umbers, and the Manderleys aren't overly fond of the Umbers either. Maybe they legitimize Lord Hornwood's bastard son, Lawrence, who's being fostered deep with Ma. Well, then Rob secures the western part of the north, but he pisses off the Umbers, Manderleys, and Lady Hornwood herself. How about instead they have the younger Tallheart son fostered with Lady Hornwood, and maybe he takes the Hornwood name in exchange for becoming the heir. Thus, the line continues, but then you have all of these other claimants. The bottom line of what I'm saying is that there is this is a proverbial Gordian knot that George is tying for the northern plot line. But there is a sharp sword, get it, sharp sword, that will cut it as Lewin will foreshadow here in this chapter. The Dreadfort has no claim that I know, but the lands adjoin, and Roose Bolton is not one to overlook such a chance. So that's essentially what's going on here is that you have this massive political problem in the form of Lady Hornwood's inheritance. Who is going to inherit Hornwood's lands? People are trying to figure this out politically without force, but the Boltons don't give a shit about figuring things out politically. If they can take it by force with their sharp swords and with the bastard of Bolton, they can and they will. And here's the point where I get to interrogate, interrogate Stephen Atwell here and asking about, you had written in your analysis back a couple of years ago that you say that this is the one of the prime movers for the fall of Rob Stark and the fall of the Northern Cause. And I want you to defend that. Sure. So uh, as I wrote about God uh, way back in 2014... Part of the difficulty here is that each of these different claims, you know, have different houses backing them, right? You know, female line, male line, bastard line, you know, fostering, you know, all kinds of different marriage packs and the widow's use rights. They've all got swords backing them, right? You know, the Ramsey has 600 men. The Tallhearts have maybe 1,100. Even after the fall of of Deepwood Mott and the sack of Deepwood Mott, the, the Glovers and the Hornwoods have hundreds of men, which probably means they had more like a thousand to begin with. The Karstarks have their 400 men that they eventually, uh, you know, show up uh, to, to fight for Stannis. The Umbers have their 400 men. You know, it's like each of these hundreds all together adds up into thousands. And those are thousands of men who could have fought off the Ironborn attack except that when the attack lands, they're all fighting each other. And as a result, you know, Winterfell burns, which means Rob needs the, you know, has to retake the North, which means he needs the phrase again, which means the Red Wedding happens. So, you know, there's figuring out what the most consequential domino is, is really hard because potentially Rob could never have slept with Jane Westerling. 
And all of that stuff would have happened anyway. All of the Northern stuff would have happened anyway. And it, it, it's sort of my, my thing about how, like, you know, things are really, you know, how, how much of a problem something is really differs if you have money. Like, if <laughs> if the North had, had pulled together, then, you know, Rob Stark's um, marriage might not have been such a big deal. This is really the case that, like, I think if you just look at the numbers, and especially if you look at what's going on, that it's like, not just, oh, you've got all of these numbers, but, like, the moment that Lady Hornwood gets snapped up, right, Wyman Manderley occupies the Hornwood lands, and then everyone's pissed off about that. And Roderick completely takes his eye off the ball, right? He's not paying attention to what's going on on the West Coast. He's busy, you know, trying to keep the the um, uh, the Boltons and the Manderleys from killing each other. And then, you know, he's pulling men out of Torrens Square and Deepwood Mott in order to do that. And then he's got to rush them back when the Ironborn... So it's like there's no opportunity to, like have an actual calling of the banners and like get the North on a war footing all together and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. There, There's no mobilization and there's no place to mobilize from anymore. It's so complex, but once you tease it out, I think it just makes the narrative stronger as you see how the different forces intersect because yeah, there's the level at which the Hornwood crisis is making the North unprepared for the Ironborn, and yet that allows the Ironborn campaign, which is, is so preposterously poorly planned, to be much more successful than it would otherwise be. But then there's the added layer of, even with that, the Ironborn victories would still be temporary if not for Ramsay. And so <laughs> you get this great, this great complete narrative where the Hornwood narrative just kind of empowers Ramsay and allows him to side step his way into power via the rake gambit so he's perfectly prepared to be in place when the ironborn provide him the vacuum he needs to bushwhack the stark loyalists and if any part of that breaks down yeah you have this this powerful uh, loyalist force at winterfell that could potentially butterfly away the red wedding or even if it can't do that at least be prepared to stand against the boltons and the fray much more effectively than what happened so it's 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 a it's a great way of this this small political dispute just having yeah, these these ripple effects and as you say it ends up being with with no clear no clear good side or no clear side that's trying to solve things because Sir Roderick as Bran says is almost as angry angry with the Manderleys as he is with Ramsay at that <laughs> point because they've just completely escalated the conflict and the Manderleys are now establishing this record of not really caring if they check with the Starks before they do things yeah and they're going to start operating on their own which yeah that's not as obvious and urgent a threat as the Boltons who are cannibalizing everything from within but long term it suggests that the Manderleys have to be managed in a way that Winterfell is not currently managing them but yeah Ramsay overall again is, is emerging as, as the fly in the ointment of this new polity this is Lady Hornwood is the first one to bring him up and bring him up as a distinct threat as someone as you say who is out in the darkness and ultimately not going to follow the rules and he's specifically taking advantage of this power vacuum left by most lords and their forces heading to the south because Roos is not in charge of manning the Dreadfort and keeping Ramsay in line anymore, and no one seems to be on the wheel besides him at this point. And as you say, there are there is a fair amount of manpower in the north, but not as much as there was, so Ramsay does not need much manpower to cause trouble now. Split up, so it's sort of, yeah. you can get local dominance with 600 guys if you use them the right way. Yes, and Winterfell sure, can't use everyone out. else. Exactly, and Winterfell can't use everyone else super effectively. And already we see Ramsay obsessed with gaining access to that Bolton name, and not just as a personal chip on his shoulder, although it is, but as a specific vessel toward power. 
that he understands that civil wars are politically tumultuous times, and that sometimes allows the likes of Dabo Seaworth to rise, which is great, but it also allows the likes of Ramsay to rise, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. And it's, it's really noticeable, right? What's the first thing he goes for? He wants to become Lord of Hornwood in his own right. Mm-hmm. Like, that. It, that is a clear sign of, like, A, it's the chip on his shoulder, but it, B, it's, like, you know... Yeah, he's he's a disorganized psychopath, but like he's also a disorganized psychopath who desperately like wants to be a lord. He wants power. I think that's that's something we're getting at in this episode is that everyone in the north, no matter their archetype, no matter what image they're trying to put up, understands the smell of land and available mm-hmm. land. And everyone is getting in on that scent for their own personal reasons. And that we see that when the umbers walk in. You know, these 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 perfect chuckleheads who just like cut through the pretenses of all these other lords by just staggering and half drunk. They make, like, really, Crow Food and Horseman make the Great John look sober by comparison, which is just something I love. <laughs> that you see, you get the Great John set up in book one as this large-than-life bellowing figure, yeah. and he looks like like the nerd of the family Can compared you to his them uncles. As teens? Like, like all three brothers as, as teenagers, it would have been incredibly insufferable. These just like giants thundering around breaking shit <laughs> just causing trouble and, it's, and i love again the, the way the phrase works that they operate in pairs you have the crow food is basically yeah the great john squared who as soon as he walks in is already talking about the, the cure for grief i got under my furs <laughs> but then then you have horsebane who's consistently set up as consistently set up as the smart one and thus the most dangerous one because he's the one actually keeping tally of everything he's the one who says we need ships the great john took everybody because he's an idiot <laughs> And I need people to just help out get the harvest in. And as we'll say later in the episode, you see that dynamic again in the Dance with Dragons. And that's important because it establishes that, yes, this is the Umbers. Yeah, they genuinely are this way, but this is also an image they are deploying to get what they want. They are offering a different sort of test than the Manderleys or the Hornwood Inheritance. Because the Umbers pretty clearly consider themselves to be the true arbiters of who's northern or not. Like, even more so than the Starks. They see, like, we're, you know, we set the standard and everyone else falls in line or doesn't. I mean, hence your meat is bloody tough. It's like, all right, you know, you might be a Stark, but I'm going to see, like, are you a punk or are you tough? Because I respect someone who's tough, but, you know, otherwise, I'm going to try to roll over you as much as I can. Precisely. And the great John understands in this moment, oh, the Rob can be, he can be, he can be like an Umber. He can fit my image of politics so I can do well tying myself to his star. We will make sense together, Rob Stark and I, politically, visually. And the Umbers get that, and that's, yeah, they're, it's not that they're too bluff and honest for politics. It's that they have their own angles to pursue like anyone else, and they just have a different way of doing it. Crow Food comes in, playing the, you know, the, the swaggering life of the party. But like Ramsay, he's clearly just trying to, I need land on my own. I need to get out of my brother's household and, and have a little power on my own. So put me in charge of the Hornwood lands, and I will serve Umber interests and Northern interests while also being Lord Moors in my own right. They're, but they're, they're different from Wyman in that they're not lords and that they're trying to acquire their own power bases. Like the way like Garland Terrell ends up a great lord in his mm-hmm. own right with Brightwater Keep, which is just more impressive than the second son of even a great house was ever going to be. And it's, 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 a, it's a question of understanding their interests underneath the surface and getting them to, to get in line with House Stark. Because uh, like the Manderleys, they're not subversive they're not potential traitors in the midst like ramsey but they do need to be managed and they need to be forced to work with wyman because again they don't they don't see him as a true northman and they see his interests as antithetical to theirs and but there's that important moment when bran is amazed to see that they ultimately do it as, as tough as the umbers come across they'll ultimately knuckle under to start to the starks because as you say they they know they know where their bread is buttered and they know where the power structure comes from and they know that uh, there, there's a sense that the Starks have managed to inculcate in people across the North that 
that you're in charge because the Starks let you stay in charge. And the yeah. Starks have managed to keep that in people's minds. Well, the the Starks mean stability, and when you are the when you are the elite, stability is great. You don't want anything, you know, screwing up <laughs> screwing up the system. The thing that I like the moment that I think is the most interesting is like, you know, yes, it's true that like the umbers are like, oh, you know, Great John took everyone, but they're also saying that in the context of like, you know, so we'd really like to get out of our responsibilities and instead have you actually do the stuff that we're supposed to be doing. True. Um, but we're also going to complain about the help. Like that's, that's to me the most like archetypal, you know, umber politics. It's like, wait a second, you know, you mean we have to work with the Mandalays? And it's almost like, again, this test of like, you know, are you going to bang our heads together? Like, are, are you tough enough to do that? Or are you just going to let us, like, you know, bitch and moan until, you know, we're completely getting everything we want? And I think they're, in some ways, like, kind of relieved when they're told to, like, do what they're told. Because that means, <laughs> like, okay, we, we've tested the center of political authority, and it's still good. Absolutely. And there's, there's never the sense that the Umbers feel like they can replace the Starks in the way that the Boltons want to, but in the sense of... Yeah, what's our relationship with this generation of Stark power going to be? And are we going to... And there's that tension where, yeah, they kind of... They want to walk all over them because that gets them the most power, but they also don't want to be the center... They also don't want to be the center of power to be so weak that it falls apart because then, then they're, they, they're just back to, to inner house conflict in the North. So they still do want to support this center. And that, yeah, that tension works really well. I think you also have something else that's, that's at work here. You see the interconnectedness of different plot lines coming into effect. You have... The understrength nature of the Night's Watch contributing to the fact that the wildlings can cross the Bay of Seals and land and number land and raid there. You also have the impact of the of the small John and Great John Umber taking all of the men south of them, so all of their all of their crops are going to seed. Like we're one of the, the the great things about George is how you have this tapestry of plot lines that are all just kind of intersecting throughout the narrative, and you blink and you miss it, but you do see stuff like the fact that you know. Elsie Mormon is complaining that he, he's got 300 dudes to man the wall. He's only got three castles that he's manning right now. He can't protect the actual northern lands. Do you have the impact of the Great John taking, uh, was it like three to 4,000 of the men south with him, leaving only 400 dudes down there as well? I mean, one of the, the aspects that, that we're, I think George is driving as well is that war, in this case, however justified the Rob's campaign for independences, which I think is completely justified, you are seeing some impacts. There are some negative economic connotations that we're not able to bring in the harvest. We can't defend ourselves. This, these are impacts. These are like overall impacts. So we're not just looking at Rob's war as this noble, great thing that Rob is doing to avenge Ned Stark and bring justice to Ned's killers. We're also seeing that that has some negative connotations to what's happening on the, on the home front. And that's important that George is emphasizing that storyline here in Brand 2. War creates feasts for crows, and I think, you know, what happened, so much of Ramsey's character is like a trial run for Eurons, I feel like that becomes clearer and clearer as you, as you reread, and in both cases, the war makes them possible. The war clears out previous power structures and, and weakens unity and just lessens numbers and just allows them both to hijack those power structures, which if they were stronger and more unified might be able to shake them off, and I think that's definitely part of Martin's overall political critique. So we see the uh, the Glubbers and the Tallhearts show up as well. They don't get as much individual attention, but they're there. Each house making their own play for the piece of the Hornwood inheritance. And it's it's a great combination of, of individual politics and institutional politics. Because as Brand notes, oh, okay, so this steward is really the person in charge of Deepwood Mott. 
It's not the Glovers, literally. It's this guy they've appointed who has managed to, you know, take control and take authority in the wake of uh, Galbert and, and Robert going south. So that's, you know, that's the house as, as institution that, they, that keeps kind of chugging even if the person really running the show isn't the person with the name. But you also see the impact of, of individual relations. You have Leobald Tallhart hesitating to properly respect Bran, and Bran notices it and hates him for it. And that might matter, because as Roger Cassell says, the future is uncertain, Bran, you could well end up Lord of Winterfell one day. And then it might matter that Wyman Manderley was nice to Bran, and Leobald <laughs> Tallhart was not. That might come out in the form of stronger politics and stronger outcomes for House Manderley than for House Tallhart, and won't Leobald regret having screwed up here. So it's, it's that great mix, I think, that you get across in this chapter, that politics is about both... You know, there's this endless lists of details and how are you putting a quarter away? You're putting a fifth away. What are you doing with your harvest? Who's really giving the orders behind the scenes? But politics is also about these these moments of contact between two individuals and how much kind of trickles down from that. And I think you see that with what we're saying about the Hornwood crisis, that these 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 happenstance deaths at the same times of both Hornwood's son and heir in the battles has all these ripple effects because it's filtered through all these different institutions and through all these different families. And throughout, we're seeing the limitations of the current leaders of Winterfell because they can't properly protect Lady Hornwood. They can't properly bring Benford Tallheart to heel. Like, you know, Lewin and Sir Roderick are clearly well-intentioned. But one thing you really notice in this chapter is is how much of the northern politics are already starting to spin out of their control. And all of that, I think, implicitly is setting a standard for Bran to do better than that. This is, this is, this is the domain in which he has to exist, and this is how he has to improve. Yeah, I, I just wanted to throw in two things. One of the things that makes the... The fact that the Glovers and Tallhearts are both there, really interesting, is they're the two non-lordly houses. Right. That are also principal houses. So part of the reason why they're really interested in the Hornwood inheritance, in addition to, like, the the hard power of, you know, land and, and whatnot, they really want the title. Mm-hmm. Right? They want mm-hmm. someone with their blood, you know, because, let's be honest, there's th- there's no way that, you know... If, if, uh, uh, you know, either, uh, a fosterling or a, a bastard who, you know, gee, I wonder if they'll get married to someone from the house that they've been fostering at, <laughs> you know, they want a Lord with their, you know, someone with their blood to have the title of Lord of Hornwood, because then they can sort of say like, no, we are Lords. And, you know, if you don't watch out, you know, our cousin's going to get you. Um, but yeah, I think part of the problem is that. Lewin and Roderick Cassell are very good peacetime consiglieres. Sure. <laughs> they're very, they're, they're good people, but they're very conventional thinkers in both cases. Uh, and, you know, it, it's really worth noticing that, like, when, when Bran starts bringing, like, reacting to some of these proposals and thinking through, like, well, what are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Like, why don't we push the, you know, envelope? Why don't we do some of this stuff? They're hanging back and saying, let's give that all to Rob, as if he's not away fighting a <laughs> war thousands of miles away and doesn't really have the, like, on-the-ground up-to-date information or the ability to in- enforce a lot of his decisions from that long a distance. What you were sort of saying with, with Roderick, I don't think it's actually that he couldn't marry Donnell. Everyone would know that it's a, sh- a stopgap. In fact, the fact that he only has... Beth Castle helps because everyone would recognize like, okay, Beth Castle is not going to inherit Castle Hornwood, but it would mean an adult male warrior is in charge of that castle long enough for whoever they, you know, they pick to be the the next Lord of Hornwood and, 
you know, whoever they marry that kid to because he needs to be married to one of the losers in order to spread the wealth around to, like, grow up and not die horribly at the hands of Ramsay Snow. Uh, so it's like, it, it's really noticeable that they don't think, they don't see that opportunity. And the same thing happens actually with Ben for Tolhart, which is, as it turns out, it would be a really good thing to have an, ex like, a well-trained cavalry force on the west coast of the north in just a few chapters. But, like, Roderick's whole thing is like, no, I don't want them around. Ro Rob Those hasn't punks. asked... Rob hasn't asked for them yet. And it's like, <laughs> you're not necessarily going to be in a position where Rob is going to be able to make that ask. You need to like take advantage of these things. And like, you know, if, if, you know, Roderick had like brought them under his wing and said like, okay, you want to have a cavalry force. They're going to be at Winterfell wearing Stark sigils and like doing what we say, then who knows? Like, Maybe he could have dispatched them to deal with the Hornwood stuff instead of having to, like, grab men from everywhere else in the kingdom. So I, I think that it's like they try they try their best, but they're just not the persons that you want leading a highly chaotic, um, you know, very uncertain, very unpredictable war effort. They they make the classic mistake of assuming no one will do anything unexpected. Mm -hmm. Right, and they they don't realize that political actors aren't going to just stay still because you want them to, or because, even because you tell them to. They're going to make their own plays, and th those plays might be well intentioned, as with Wyman Manderley. They might be fucking nightmarish, as with Ramsay. But it's going to happen, and they don't seem to understand that part of the role of being House Stark is stamping your face on everything, even if it doesn't necessarily strike you as logical or right in the moment. Or you don't have the Stark's approval in that moment. You need to be present. You need to be there. So Roderick at, in, in House Hornwood is a sign that the Starks are taking an active role in this and that they are the ultimate deciders, not the Umbers, not the Manderleys, not the Boltons, taking control of the Tallheart men, same deal. Part of it is just they're not used to the Stark being in the South. This is rare that, the, that you know, the Stark in Winterfell is a child and that there is still an adult or close to an adult male in House Stark, but he is in the South. And that's a new part of his realm. And that gets that across that this is a new kingdom, a new polity they're setting up and people are still aren't quite sure what the rules are. And they're making them up as they go, and they they got to figure it out. But yeah, R Roderick and Lewin are, are are fatally holding back on a lot of areas that you can, as as we've been saying, you can again see, you can see George seeding in the Northern Downfall that it doesn't just come out of nowhere that there are, are weaknesses to be exploited, and who oh boy do they get exploited? Yeah, and you know, not to criticize Rob too much, but I mean, Rob's rush to get south means that a lot of things kind of got left by the wayside, right? Rob's essentially tells Bran before he heads south, "You're the Stark of Winterfell. Just, just take care of shit while I'm gone." And you know, there's there's an interesting uh, counterexample to that, and you have the the Glover Maester who is seen in in this chapter here as kind of this dimwit idiot who's consulting with hedge wizards and only setting aside a tenth of his harvest, likely to sell the rest of the harvest out for, for economic benefit for the Glovers. But Rob could have empowered a person like Roger Cassell and Maester Lewin to make decisions in his absence in the same way that the Glover Maester is empowered by, you would assume, Robit or, or Galbert Glover to make decisions in their absence. Well, maybe, but maybe he's just doing it, which is also what Roderick and Lewin need to at some point do. Yeah. They need to say, you know yeah. what? Screw Rob's permission. We need to just take these steps and presume that this well-intentioned young man we raised isn't going to behead us for it when he gets home. Well, I think it's it speaks to part of the problem, which is that there was a conga line of handoffs. Yeah, exactly. Right? Ned this was never supposed to be the case. Like, Ned went south and said, okay, Rob's going to be Stark in Winterfell. But, like, 
didn't, you know, in part because he was, you know, 14, like, didn't really hand over the keys completely, right? You know, there were supposed to be a whole bunch of adults around him. Uh, and then Rob had to go south. And then, like, Catelyn sent back Roderick, but didn't really say, like, okay, you're regent now. Right. Like, there, you know, and as I sort of said, neither of these guys really quite has this sort of mentality and temperament. Like, you, you send the Blackfish to Winterfell, you know, assuming that he, he would be accepted as legitimate because, you know, he's from the <laughs> South. But you send a Northerner like that as the regent, and things go very, very differently. Absolutely. You have to have somebody who can, can manage all these houses together. And the, the implication is that the hope that Bran is going to grow into that kind of figure. You will be in a special fine lord yes. one day, as, as Roderick says to him, and that he's, these are the seeds. And But of course, as, as Jeff said, you have the, the other part of Bran's story in the background, the magical, which is, is, you know, the constant give and take throughout A Clash of Kings is these political and magical worlds intersecting. And you see that very strongly in Bran's chapters. This is probably the most, uh, the highest percentage goes to the political and the least to the magical of all these chapters. In this book, because uh, Jojen Reed shows up at the end of the next one, and then kind of really uh, takes over that storyline. And in my memory, I kind of reduced Magic's presence uh, in this chapter to the the dream at the end. But it really it does pop up throughout. It's it, Osha mentions the dreams early on. You get that hedge wizard at Deepwood Mott who kind of keeps the Lewin's scorn and contempt for Magic keeps popping up throughout this storyline because he represents the one pole for Bran with Jojen as the other. Uh, it's there with Hodor, as we'll get into in a bit. And I think Jeff nailed it when he said this provides a great microcosm of the series as a whole and positions Bran as the link, that he is always both the crossover point between political and magical worlds. And as we get into A Storm of Swords, he's both a budding greenseer, but also the Stark in exile, the prince who carries the, the, the realm King. with him. The Fisher King, exactly, who runs into the little, and he's, he's the one who hears the wolves will come again and what it means to be the Stark in Winterfell. And that's why... When Stannis' letter shows up, it provokes such a different response in him than anyone else, because he has such a different relationship to that secret compared to anyone else, because it's connected to his trauma and, and the, the loss of his childhood. And I think, Stephen, you made the good point that it, it, it is frustrating that Bran's memory doesn't seem to pay off in any logistical way. Like, the fact that Bran knows this doesn't really seem to matter so far in the story. But I do yeah. think it I do think it works in terms of his character arc, that it snaps everything into place, that you have Bran's third eye you know, propels him forward, but also calls him back. It's tied to his future, but also his memory. And his, his loss and his powers are rooted in this terrible truth about the royal family, this terrible truth about politics, about the core of the political fights that are waging across Clash of Kings. Bran kind of knows that secret, and that secret is related to his magical side. And he himself, if we take the show as canon, is destined to take over that very same crown. So I think I think you can see George trying to connect the political and magical in a lot of ways with Bran. I don't think it's necessarily always successful, but I think that's the goal. And partly, it's a really great, like, little encapsulation of PTSD. Like, yeah. he's mm -hmm. just, he has an instant panic attack. The moment that anything even close to this mm -hmm. is, is revealed. But it's also the case that, like, you know, in this very shamanistic way, right, his injury is his power. Yep. Like, and that he can't really have the one until he accepts the other, right? The, the you know... I mean, earlier on, right, the three-eyed crow says, like, you're not ready yet to remember. You're not ready for the power and everything that's, that's going to come with it. But here it's like, no, I'm going to peck your third eye <laughs> open. Remember, this is what happened to you. It wasn't an accident. You know, someone really did try to murder a child. And your coming to terms with this is partly, like... 
yeah, this is how you become, uh, you know, the not just the Fisher King, but the king of the healed land, the Grail King. Right. And you also have the, the aspect, too, that you get the impression that Three-Eyed Crow needs to urge Bran along because plot events are coming that the Three-Eyed Crow seems to be have some sort of prophetic insight in understanding and and in realizing that the the, the iron border coming and ramsey is, is coming as well so jojo reed gets dispatched to brand as we find out in, in the next chapter and as he's going to reveal later on in a clash of kings he is dispatched specifically because of the vision that the three-eyed crow sends to him uh when he's at when he's down at Greywater watch and it's important that we have that melding of the magical side here at the end of the chapter because it's always supposed to be overshadowing what's happening in Bran's plot movements. Yes, we spent 95% of this chapter analysis talking about all the politics that, that's going in here because it's so fucking fascinating and interesting. But at the same time, George is always kind of reminding us like, guys, Bran's kind of special. The magical side is important to him. The Three-Eyed Crow has selected Bran for a specific purpose, and that purpose is going to have an overarching consequence and result in the next War for the Dawn and will likely have more of a plot impact than we saw in Season 8 of the show. And these aren't actually different worlds, the political and magical worlds. There is yes. not actually a strict line separating them. Like Stannis and Melisandre, that whole plot line makes that abundantly clear over and over again. But, like, Bloodraven's story makes that clear. He was both a crazy eldritch sorcerer and Hand of the King. He was a mm -hmm. spy master who used magical tools for political ends. And I don't think his M.O. has actually changed that much. Like, it takes a certain cold Machiavellian brutality to handle Bran the way he does. And I think that's because of the worldview he cultivated when he was a politician. And the same thing goes for Bran, that he has to try to reconcile these worlds and apply lessons from one to the other. And uh, we're going to see that again when the Reeds show up, because Jojen and Mira Reed show up in part as Bran's magical mentors, but also as like the most earnest and, and compassionate articulation of the Stark oath to their vassals. And those those relationships that we're talking about all through this chapter, the Reeds embody that more than anybody. So it, it's, it's always both. And I think that's really key to what makes Clash of Kings interesting. And a key to what makes the magic of A Song of Ice and Fire interesting is that it's not, as George has said, it's not deployed as a way to cut through political problems. It interacts with the political problems in interesting ways. Absolutely. So I think it about wraps up for our depth section of this podcast. I've really enjoyed that, as I always do, and talk about these brand chapters. To kind of take us into the foreshadowing groundwork portion of it, uh, to kind of get a little bit to the, into the more of the magical side of it, we got um some interesting stuff here. If you have season six in retrospect, if you've got the episode The Door, which is one of season six's finest episodes, in my opinion, we have the revelation that Hodor's name means hold the door. And we also have the revelation, too, about how Hodor assumed the name, which is some sort of time, travel, predestination, fate sort of thing happening where Bran Stark is infecting the mind of Hodor. And we have this quote here in this chapter that Bran thinks, if the gods hadn't taken your wits, he's speaking to Hodor here, you would have been a great knight. You know, given that the old gods are green seers who've gone into the trees, if you're a believer in that theory, which I absolutely am. Is this foreshadowing of Bram scrambling Hodor's brain here? The gods hadn't taken your wits, the old gods here, in this case being Bran Stark. If Bran Stark hadn't taken Hodor's wits, Hodor would have been a great knight. It kind of feels that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the in part, I think the, the whole hold the door idea is a metaphor for, you know, the doors of perception and the idea that Bran is passing through into this other world, into this other way of being, and that there are sacrifices along the way, including of other people as Jojen himself is an example of. And Jojen has that chilling line in A Dance with Dragons uh, when Bran gets afraid of what's happening to him. And Jojen says, he is not the one who needs to be afraid. 
And I love that because the implication is, yeah, everyone else is the one who needs to be afraid. The people around Bran are the yeah. ones who really needs to be afraid. And Hodor is, is the ultimate example of that. And it's, yeah, Bran is, is, ends up kind of joining the, the gallery of the gods in a way that he doesn't realize and doesn't seem to want. Which, as always, is a great contrast to uh, to Euron, his dark opposite, who more than anything wants to join the gods and will ha- will happily, you know, massacre thousands of Hodors to get there. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I just outlined uh, Bran three of a Storm of Swords, the first mm. time that he wargs into Hodor, mm-hmm. and it's so clear from the outset he doesn't know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He do- he's not really even intending to do it. And it's like, no, this, you know, that's, that's how it's going to start. It's not how it's going to end. Absolutely. Um, he's, just, he's just trying to save, to prevent Hodor from giving themselves away. And it's just like, it's just a moment and then it's over. It's just so short. Ooh. It really, really is. And then we have a couple references too about doors, obviously banging into door frames, stuff like that, which again, in retrospect, having season six in mind, we do get the sense that George is building up this revelation and you see the same thing with Danny and the red door again. Like the doors, archways, they're always the classic symbol of, you know, transcending, becoming a different self and then, you know, leaving leaving so many things behind. So it's 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 great stuff. Some more foreshadowing again in terms of, of brands. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of which uh, in terms of foreshadowing of Bran's character arc, you get this this line, Bran knew he would never be a lord, no more than he could be a knight. Rob's to marry some fray girl, you told me so yourself, and the Walders say the same. He'll have sons, and they'll be the lords of Winterfell after him, not me. So, of course, tragic foreshadowing for the Red Wedding in there, and then, of course, Rob will not marry the fray girl and not have any children. But also that, yeah, Bran, is, his ultimate goal is not to be a lord or a knight, but to, to go right up the ladder and be king. And I, I think... You know, obviously, you can be biased coming back to it, but I think you do see strong hints of that in that direction in these early class chapters where Bran is being prepared for leadership. Uh, I think it's it's less explicit than with, like, John and Danny, but it also doesn't have the John and Danny sense of, I hate this, why am I doing this? <laughs> I mean, you have a little of that with Bran, but, like, with John and Danny and Dance, like, they're, they're so clearly selling their souls or feeling like they are to get things done. And with Bran, there is a little more optimism, I think. I'll, I'll make a slight quibble in that I think he's the foreshadowing is him as king in the north, not hmm. Westeros, because when Winterfell, Winterfell is the place that is broken and must be rebuilt. He is Bran the the rebuilder, and that's true. You know, like as as we've sort of seen in this chapter, like this is the realm that he has connection to, right? When the little say that the you know the stark shall come again they're not saying like you know in some broader political sense way down south to a country we're not going to be a part of anymore it's like no we you know he you know now he's actually going to have this really deep political connection uh to this you know northern political community and it's not really you know you never see in you know from this chapter through to the end of a dance of dragons he's not building relationships with anyone from the south like it's not a political world that he knows or has any emotional resonance with, but yeah, Winterfell, absolutely. That's an excellent point. Yeah, agreed. I think as you said before, there's the idea that maybe he'll rule from the Isle of Faces or something when it get, if it gets to him being king of Westeros. But it, it does feel lacking in that he has no connection to King's Landing and Southbound politics at all, and then these deep connections to Northern politics that does feel askew. I agree. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully George will, if George is going the route of setting Bran up as King of Westeros, we're going to get a lot of that in the Winds of Winter, hopefully, maybe under 
Blood Ravens to Lich, who Blood Raven is very much connected to the south of Westeros and connected also to the north too, but especially connected to King's Landing as being both Hand of the King and Master of Whispers under the various Targaryen rulers of uh, ancient times. Not that ancient, really, but that he'll, he'll be able to impart some of these lessons to Bran. But he could be King of the North too. But I, I still tend to favor Bran as being the overall King of Westeros, probably ruling from the Isle of Faces, but I'll let George be the ultimate arbiter of how that actually goes comes about. So... Finally, in terms of some of our little bit of foreshadowing here, we've got this curious line that Roger Cassell mentions about uh, Lord Bolton not, never acknowledging Ramsay so far as he knows. And then Roderick says, fatefully, I confess, I do not know him. Uh, few do, Lady Hornwood replied. And this idea that only a few people know who Ramsay is and fewer know what he looks like is going to play a major role in the Reek Ramsay conundrum and that plot that's going to come later in A Clash of Kings that ends up confusing everyone. As everyone's going to think that Ramsay's dead and Reek, his servant, is alive, and they only keep him alive so he can be a witness for Rob. Again, one of those aspects of that we were talking about before about how none of these guys can seemingly make a decision without Rob's input here, because they keep Reek alive in order to prove the 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 sins of, of Ramsay to the Boltons and to Rob, and they're going to keep him alive until Rob comes back, which well, that's going to have a lot of consequences, uh, especially for Roderick, because Roderick is saying that he doesn't know who Ramsay is. It's going to prove especially fatal as Ramsay will be the one who will actually murder Roderick outside of the walls of Winterfell at the end of the book, not knowing that this is actually Ramsay Snow, not Reek. Fuck, that's good. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it makes absolute sense. Like, in some ways, it's the perfect example of, like, how much Ramsey is a disorganized psychopath who just happens to get really, really lucky in some ways. Because, like, that whole swapping clothes thing would – that wouldn't work with any other lordling. <laughs> like, all these people have met. They know what one another looks like. But this, you know, guy who's been hidden at the at the mill and never acknowledged and, you know – is way too creepy to bring to court. Like, yes, of course that makes sense. It'd just be like, we don't know who this guy is. It's, oh, it's, damn. It's, it's his political weakness ironically becoming a strength. The fact that no one knows who he is and no one cares and no one likes him ends up being a benefit because no one spots him when he when he makes the switch. And yeah, that's we're going to have a lot of fun talking about the Ramsey Gambit because I think that is that is a really interesting plot move that George uh, threads throughout these, throughout these brand chapters in the Clash of Kings. So, moving on from foreshadowing to our discussion in the chapter with, what's interesting, I think, about a lot of these characters and a lot of these plans coming back is how George builds on them for A Dance with Dragons and The Winds of Winter. And part of just kind of the plot, changing plot churn of those books and focusing much more on the, the northern plotline than I think he intended to originally, these characters ended up being a huge boon to George because they ended up being the, the main players of his northern stage of politics in A Dance with Dragons. So I think that would be good to kind of talk about how these characters play out in a, in a Dance with Dragons and how they might play out going forward in The Winds of Winter. Yes. So let's start by talking about our favorite guy that we – obviously you guys know he's our favorite guy, Lord Wyman Manderley. Wyman Manderley lurched ponderously to his feet. I have been building warships for more than a year. Some you saw, but there are many more hidden up the white knife. Even with the losses I have suffered, I still command more heavy horse than any other lord north of the Neck. My walls are strong and my vaults are full of silver. Old Castle and Widow's Watch will take their lead from me. My bannermen include a dozen petty lords and a hundred landed knights. I can deliver King Stannis the allegiance of all the lands east of the White Knife, from Widow's Watch and Ramsgate to the Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch. All this I pledge to do if you will meet my price. So the price, obviously, is to bring back Rickon Stark, which um, is going to be an interesting plot line come the Winds Winter. But just kind of like here, here's something I think is really interesting, right? So one of the aspects we talked about uh, at significant length is how they're all like basically delegating all these decisions out to Rob Stark. 
But, you know, bit of trivia here. I, I've looked through the books and references, and I don't see any spot where Rob authorized the Silver Bin or authorized Wyman to build ships. Yet it reads like that Wyman kind of chose the, quote, easier to ask forgiveness when the permission route doesn't work out route in terms of how he does these things. He, he just goes ahead and builds a silver bin. He stores up silver and he builds a fleet without Rob's leave, so to speak. So that's interesting that we have this whole aspect that's going into this chapter where Wyman Manderley is like, OK, well, if you guys are going to make a decision, I'll, I'll make the decision because you can't. I'll do it anyways. For sure. As we were saying, Manderley is a very ambitious politician and he... He understands that he can he can make a buck off every step of the way, but I just think it's 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 really interesting how that plays out uh, in light of the Red Wedding. That you see George introducing these plot elements here that end up playing out in a completely different context. Because by the time you actually get to a dance with dragons, Rob has been wiped out, his army has been wiped out, Roos is back in the north, Stannis is in the north. So you have you have to have George kind of playing with these plot lines in a, in a completely different context. No, no, I think it's fair to say that. He didn't necessarily assume when he wrote Clash of Kings that he would be focusing a lot on the the Northern Civil War a few books later, because I got to imagine his original plot called for, you know, it being a few years down the line, he was going to advance a little quicker on the plot. But he has all these elements in place to to really expand on. And yeah, I think who knows if George had Wyman uh, going ahead with this fleet and these mints on his own already in mind but the point is that the character he established would do that and i think that's that's uh, ends up being a very effective when you have these characters established early on as doing political things on their own then they can when you get to a dance with dragons you've already established their independence and it's also it's it's a neat job of kind of you know, uh, it, it's the the Chekhov's fleet and the Chekhov's mint <laughs> is like if you need the similar to the sort of the it's actually somewhat uh, I would guess or I would say um, slightly more deft than the Northern Hill clans. Sure, like yeah. if you if you need a sort of a parastate to ex- sort of explain like well how does the North get itself out of this one? It's like well the Manderleys they've got the military <laughs> muscle they've got the economic muscle. They could actually do the the retaking of the North and the rebuilding of the North. Um, and, you know, I, I have my own theory about how I think in some ways, like the Winds of Winter, or what was it, original, the you know, A Time for Wolves or whatever right. the original mm-hmm. title was going to be. Like, I think in some ways we're going to sort of see a very similar thing to the Hornwood Crisis, except now it's going to be the Starks. Yes. Because Wyman's going to have his Stark. That's clear, you know, and once again, I will bet you... You know, anyone, dollars to donuts, like, Rickon's going to get engaged to Amanderly. That's mm-hmm. just how Wyman rolls. But at the same time, like, the Veil is going to show up with their Stark. And, you know, people are going to show up with Rob's will, and that's going to be a whole thing. And then maybe the Hill Clans, you know, are going to say, hey, by the way, we didn't tell any of you, but we, like, totally <laughs> saw, you know, Bran, and he's, you know... And he likes he, us, it turns out. Yeah, he likes us, and he's gone up beyond the wall, and he's totally going to become one of the Green Seers. And, you know, he will be our once and future king. You know, it's Bonnie Prince Charlie over the waters, <laughs> and that, you know, to sky, that whole thing. So it's just sort of like, yeah, you know, it, it doesn't change, and how could it not? But hopefully the second time around, you're going to have some sort of force to build cohesion because the wall's, you know, going to come tumbling down. Right. And I think we also saw that a little bit in season seven, season eight of Game of Thrones, where you have this conflict between Sansa and Jon 
and Arya a little bit and Bran as when he when he shows up at Winterfell in season eight of who's actually going to be the Stark of Winterfell, who's going to be the King of the North, who's going to actually be in command of of the North, and that's and, and I think you make a great point uh, about the Hornwood inheritance being set up for the eventual you know Stark Bowl as as, I, as I've called it in the past yeah. of, of possibly these claimants all coming to to Winterfell with different powers backing them, and that provides presents another thorny question about who actually is going to end up as the ultimate ruler of the North. I think the show kind of provides a pathway that I think is plausible and that we have John acting as the King of the North for a little while before he, he bends the knees to Daenerys Targaryen, kind of doing the same route Torn Stark did back in the day before Sansa then becomes Queen of the North at the very end of the series. But that still leaves open questions about what are the roles of Bran and Rickon going to be specifically. I think that Bran will come back to Winterfell at some point in the books, similar to how he did in, this, in the show itself. Exactly. There's this continuity here in that we see the, the system between the Starks and their vassals set up in this chapter, certainly not ideally, but the relationship set up. And then we see that relationship go through a stress test. We go, th- we see that relationship go through the Red Wedding. And what we see on A Dance with Dragons is that it emerges out the other side intact, that that relationship is still there, that it survived the Starks collapsing, and that everyone still, the instinct is not to replace the Starks, except for the Boltons, but to get their own Stark. That's their ticket back to power. Not to be the new power, but to get use the Starks as their way back in. And that kind of supersedes individual conflicts, because I don't think John and Sansa are going to want to fight, really. But there are a lot of powers behind them or behind Rickon and Bran that are, are going to be competing for control in the North. And that's something they have to deal with. And you see that already being set up right here. So it feels... I think George does a lot of this work, so it feels organic. So later developments feel like they're, they're, they're coming from a, a real place instead of just being invented on the fly, because he's spoken about how much he, he doesn't like that. You see that with the Mandalese, and I think you also, you, yeah, you see that with the Umbers, because the, the Horsebane uh, and Kruf get, get up to some interesting things when you get to a dance with dragons oh, yeah. and going into Winds of Winter, where publicly they're fighting. Publicly, Horsebane has gone to join Ramsay, and Crowfood stays neutral at first and then joins Stannis. But A, they really don't seem like rivals or enemies in this chapter. They seem like drinking buddies since they were 12. And they seem like they, they just seem like they, you know, they're tight brothers and they've always gotten along that way. And the Umbers overall seem like a good unit. And they definitely don't seem like potential traitors to the Star Cause. Like there's no, there's no real reason for Horsebane to genuinely join the Boltons. And then when you see him with the Boltons, he's like, he's still wearing armor and he's talking shit about Ramsay. And everyone, and even, or even Barbie Dustin says, yeah, if you guys didn't hold the Great John, the Horsebane would be eating your entrails by now. <laughs> he doesn't actually like you guys. So it seems like the, on the surface, the Umbers are playing one side against the other, and they're 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 completely they're completely cynical, and they're just seeing which side will win. But I think you can see hints that once more that they're playing the game with Stark power as always the end game and always the vessel through which through which they flow. I think Horsebane is, is probably eventually going to turn on the Boltons. You get that mention in Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter that he only took the old men with him and that left all the young men with crow food. Which is a giant warning sign, given what we know about how northern <laughs> culture works. When winter shows, the old men go off and, you know, let themselves starve to death or die in glorious battle to leave enough food for the young people. So that seems to kind of be what the what the, the, the trick the Umbers are pulling. But again, it, it's, it's all rooted in the character dynamics we see rooted here and the politics we see rooted here. Because even if Horsebane is, is inflating the numbers when he talks about how many people left with the Great John... You know, that, that, that logic still applies, that when winter comes, that there might not be enough food to go around, and the old men have to go off and die in glorious battle, so they do. And if they can sweep the Starks back into power in doing so, then they'll, then they'll do it. And it's that same mix we like here, where it's, it's genuine patriotism merged with hard politics, in a sense that these are not separate realms, but that they go together. And I think that, that's something I really like about the series. 
Yeah, I was going to say, like, especially, um, you know, from that, uh, you know, God, this is really like how crazy we fans get. But like, sure. that's that that picture that people took of George's uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, word star uh, screen <laughs> and like, you know, reverse engineering from that. But like, yeah, there, you know, chances are at least one umber, if not two, are going to die shiny and chrome on the road to Valhalla, you know. They're, they are ride or die for the Starks, you know, when it comes down to it. And yeah, what, what better way to go out than like murdering Boltons? Like, especially, especially for the Umbers, like, you know, who have probably been fighting the Boltons since before the advent of metalworking. Exactly. (laughs) And that just speaks to the reputations that who are the Boltons at the end of the day? The people you kill to have a glorious death. And who are the Starks at the end of the day? The people you kill the Boltons for. And that's going to be the relationship. And that's how you organize. That's how, you know, we're getting a little over the top, but that's how you assign meaning to your life, really. That's how you say at the end of the day, as Big Bucket Wolf says, this is how, this is what it means. This is how it means everything for me. This is how, this is so I spent my entire 20s fucking and fighting. And this is what gives all of that meaning is me dying like this. And the Starks seem to politically understand that that's where their strength comes from, is people are always going to think like that about them. And the Boltons, try as they might to cover it up, are always going to play the heel role. They're always the people that you, you get to spray their blood across your face before you go down. And that political reputation is just hard to get rid of. And I think you see in this chapter why that is. Absolutely. So I think that about wraps us up for this analysis of A Clash of Kings Brand 2. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was a pleasure recording this episode. And it was a pleasure because we had Stephen Atwell on. So thank you, Stephen, for joining us. Thank you. I had a great time. Yeah, man. And where can we find your stuff? Uh, so you can find my writing uh, at Patreon slash Stephen Atwell, uh, at uh, WordPress at Race for the Iron Throne, at Tumblr at Race for the Iron Throne, and on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. Excellent. Yes, always worth reading all of your stuff in every single format that you put it in for sure. So as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire. WordPress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorcedelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just to see our the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lord Timothy Yu, Sir Courtney, what did the five fingers say to the face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, and our newest High Lord, Sir Way, of course. Thank you all very much. Yes, thank you all very much, and welcome to Way, of course. Appreciate your patronage. So, join us next week for Clash of Kings Tyrion 4, in which Pycelle, Littlefinger, and Varys get played and turned by Tyrion at the height of his political skills. And this is going to be a fun one, and an especial fun one, because 
This will be our very next live stream episode, which will be coming to you all on our YouTube channel at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or Freedom Standard Time, if you prefer that nomenclature, on YouTube. Oh, come on. Stop wincing at my Freedom Standard Time. Oh, my God. Um, no, that's going to be a great chapter, obviously. It takes a bit pride of place, I think, among early teen class chapters. This is like the ultimate, like, you know, first third of Goodfellas slash Casino pleasure in watching Tyrion as this, this great... A marketeer of men and a great political craftsman. So everyone, everyone loves this chapter and for good reason. So it's going to be a fun one. So we will see you for the live cast at eight thirty p.m. on uh, on Monday the eighteenth. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us, and we will see you guys literally next week.